Shout out to the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge and the entire royal family that reparation time come now. We are rebel. This is living hell. Oh, Madam Queen, help and I to break these perilous spells. Send Lucifer back to hell. Chain him as well. Compensate and repatriate I and I to Africa as well. And all will be well. Oh, Madam Queen. Oh, Madam Queen. frustration, desolation. What a situation. Segregation, degradation, persecution. What a tribulation. We began our independence economically weak after having been pillaged by the monarchy, who today live on the benefits of that world. The cows. Gus T in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of racism, white supremacy, what it is and how it works. Uh, today's date, Tuesday, May 24th, 2022. So I have been told now I have to concede the reason that we are way outside of our normally our normal time slot. Gusty got super confused. So I can even slow walk everybody through. Now, how did I get this confused about things? So the book that we're discussing today, Children of Uncertain Fortune. I learned about this book. We have our global Sunday talk on racism. We've had it for years. Uh, third Sunday of every month, we have uh, non-white participants from around the world. Uh, Toyin. Agbetu. He was a guest on the program. He's been a guest on the program many times, but most recently he was with us uh, in March uh, of this year. And he was talking about literature, reading more important than watching television. And he mentioned this book. It's like, hmm, how interesting. So I went check it out. And the book is talking about uh, racism, white supremacy in Jamaica during uh, what they would call the colonial period, right? 1700s, 1800s uh, in Jamaica and Britain. So, right, it's two different components, right? So I'm thinking, oh, okay, this author must be in the UK. Okay, so I write him thinking he's in the UK and all that, and I'm pitching times for the program, like, oh, okay, we have people on the program from the UK, blah, 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 all this. 
So for whatever reason, it takes me a while. Like I've been reading the book and every, and then the book, like I said, the subject matter, it's got all the stuff. So you think, Oh, okay. Yes. UK, UK. So then I'm like, wait a minute. Is he in the UK? I go back and look where I emailed. It doesn't have the UK uh, suffix on it, abbreviation at the end. Right. I go back and look like, wait a minute. Then I check his email again where he wrote it. He says, yeah, I'm in California, not the UK. I don't know where you got that from. So that is why we are way early than we should be. I got bad. Uh, he didn't even say, I don't even think Toyin said that the author's from the UK. I think I just came up with that on my own and it just whew, morphed way out of control. Verify the location of the author first. Anywho, thankfully that did not detract from anything and our guest was so cool. I told him the time for the program London time and he just did the calculation was ready to roll. Didn't even cause a disturbance. So bravo all the way around. And the book does have a lot of very fascinating information. And I felt like, oh, this is totally irrelevant. You know, we've been so consumed with Buffalo and the massacre and deliberate white terrorism and thinking, you know, this is not even relevant. <sighs> Touche. I was so, so wrong. In fact, every page of this book reminded me of exactly what we have been talking about for the last 14 days. Strom Thurmond, Peyton S. Gendron, every page. Our guest for the program today, uh, the author of the text Children of Uncertain Fortune, Mixed Race Jamaicans in Britain and the Atlantic Family, 1733 to 1833. I'm not making excuses. I'm just saying you can see, though, by the title, right? How you could think, oh, OK, this person might be in the UK. Maybe, maybe. Anywho, in addition to writing this book uh, that we will be chatting it up about today, uh, our guest, uh, his interests include early American and Atlantic history. Uh, he's an associate professor of history and the history department chair at Claremont McKenna College in California. A hoot to have him on the program. Our guest joining us live, uh, Dr. Daniel Levesey. Uh Dr. Levesey, you with us, sir? I am. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to have a kind of boring American accent versus a really exciting <laughs> English accent. So <laughs> we will make do, sir. And this could have been okay. at our normal time and everybody would have been happy, including me. But psh, oh, well, we will make do uh, for our listeners. Uh, this might be their first time uh, hearing about you and your work. Uh, anything that you would like to tell folks briefly about who you are and the work that you do? No, but thanks for that introduction and thanks for inviting me. And I'm excited to talk about this and kind of discuss not only the aspects of the past that are interesting, but maybe how it connects with the, the present and certainly what's happened in Buffalo and just so what we've been seeing for years and years. I think uh, I'm glad to hear that you saw some connections there. But um, yeah, no, I'm a scholar of race and slavery uh, in what we call the Atlantic world. So kind of looking at the way that um, sort of the transatlantic slave trade transformed the Americas and also transformed Europe and, and really the globe. And so um, I have these little areas of, of examination within that, but uh, I'm really interested in, in the ways that race and slavery formed our modern world. So um, excited to talk about the book with you today. Awesome. Uh, let's see for folks uh, who have not seen you, you are a white man. Is that correct? I am. Yep. 
Right on. Uh, this program, uh, I have concluded really all of these subject matters. Uh, what's happening in Buffalo right now? J. Strom Thurmond, book we're going to discuss today, Children of Uncertain Fortune. All of that is a product of the global system of white supremacy racism. Uh, I use those two terms as synonyms, white supremacy racism. I use the same definition for both terms. Uh, the definition I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? Yeah, I, I could get behind that definition. I mean, I think that uh, it certainly exists in the sense that there are, are absolute people who would subscribe to that theory that, that there is something that is um, supreme about whiteness, that whiteness is better than other ethnic and racial groups. Uh, and then there are people that don't understand that they're taking part in that kind of a system. And, um, you know, if you're someone who believes that there's a sort of structural component to racism in this country, in this world, then I think you have to take seriously the idea that sort of foundations of that structure kind of go back centuries. And it was built upon this notion that, um, people of non-European heritage were inferior and that they needed to be put into a separate legal and social and economic category. So um, I think that what we're dealing with today is absolutely a legacy of those long-term forces. Okay. One of the things that I've concluded uh, that is super important as to why this problem continues, uh, words and just being very um, careful, uh, accurate, correct with the use of words and one thing that I've pointed out for some time with uh, non-white people victims of white supremacy uh, and my definition what I'm talking about is not legacies vestiges of anything that happened in 1733 or any other previous times my definition ongoing current right now May 2022 a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. And I'm just repeating it because I also didn't say anything about inferior or whiteness as being supreme. The core is about a power dynamic of mistreatment, subjugation, mistreatment on the basis of being not white and I just for non-white people that is very different than saying that we're dealing with vestiges of slavery or things that happened centuries ago do you understand the distinction uh, and is, is it and if and also want to make sure if you don't agree please the metaphor don't let me put words in your mouth just say that it's no problem if you don't agree we want to be accurate but do you understand the distinction that I'm making no, yeah, maybe I wasn't clear in my response. I absolutely think that there's that still is going on uh, without question. I guess I was trying to say that um, the, the yeah, as a historian, I think I think about origins, and and so to me, it, it the idea of legacies kind of connect back to the past. But um, do I believe that white supremacy still exists? Absolutely. Does it still um, have huge impacts on people of color? Absolutely. So it's not just about a kind of 
uh, legacy, but it's about an ongoing mission by some people to preserve um, whiteness as a sort of top of a social and economic pyramid. Right on. Also, one does that does that is that intersect with what you're saying, or am I still misunderstanding your definition? No, I understand what you what you said that time. I think also for listeners, it was in addition because I've we've talked to many many white people uh, over the years, all over the world, and that's very common. Well, they will deviate away from this is a power system about mistreatment. Uh, they will deviate to whiteness as superior and inferior, and then of course the golden oldie that white people and you didn't even say that you said that you have some people don't understand that they're taking part in that system that's another one because i didn't really say anything about being competent or consciously aware of all of that but that's another one that's a a classic go-to for many white people we'll probably get to that as we proceed Um, before we get into the book specifically and i do want to make sure before we even get to anything else you as a white man do you think it is logical for anyone designated as non-white in the known universe to be suspicious of any person who is classified as white, even yourself, as long as that system of white supremacy exists? Uh, That's a good question. I mean, it's tough for me to speak to that, not being a person of color, Um, but I can understand it. I can certainly understand people that would have that suspicion. I don't think it's unfounded. Do you think it's logical reasonable for non-white people to be suspicious of anyone classified as white, even you? Uh, Yeah, I think there's a logic to why someone might be. I think there's a logic as to why you might not necessarily always think that, but yeah, I I don't think that there is, I don't think it's illogical to, to go to that position. Double negative. Just pointing that out for listeners. (laughs) Don't they? Oh, we need lab to see there words are so important i just point that out because they say that in like first grade like avoid double negatives it's logical (laughs) that is much stronger and direct than i don't think it's illogical that that's another one double negative even in written texts where you have editors those double negatives persist like man you had people look at this and they didn't even correct it hmm anywho well uh, do you do you see my point i mean i guess i'm wondering if if uh what you see is the problem of saying it's not illogical to think that versus just saying it is logical. I mean, I think that there's a difference, right? It's a double negative. I mean, grammatically that is discouraged. Yes. Uh, I suppose so. But I mean, I guess what I'm saying is that within the, what the definition of that would be, does it not, do you see a problem with that idea? Uh, I don't want to bog down in that one. I just point, I mean, generally we do try to observe grammar or have a point for breaking the rules of grammar and those double negatives. That's just one I've pointed out for years and they're way more important things to discuss in your text. So we'll move. That's okay. just one for listeners to think about. Thank you for indulging me, Dr. Uh, Livesey. Um, sure. The Buffalo massacre. I think how to make sure I get your commentary it would have been way cooler if you actually were in the UK, but even being in California, um, actually, I guess the, the way I'll ask this, uh, in all of the reporting, you certainly can, can give your thoughts, but in, in all of the reporting, and now it's been over a week, uh, since this massacre and, and 10 black people being murdered, uh, are you familiar with Joseph G. Christopher? Have you heard that name mentioned at all over the past week or so? No, I haven't noticed. Uh, you can tell me more about him. Wow. 
amazing. It still continues to be unanimous. We haven't spoken with anyone white or non-white who's uh, familiar. Uh, the way in my view, and I have a history de- degree as well. I don't have a doctorate, but I do have a history degree if that means anything. Um, Joseph G. Christopher, where I'll go back, the way that the event in Buffalo should have been reported is once again a white supremacist targeted an East Buffalo Tops grocery store specifically to hunt and kill black people. Now you want to talk about legacies and putting things in a historical context. I think that would have hit people way differently that wait a minute, all of this happened before? Yes. And not even can I ask how old you are, Dr. Livesey? If you don't want to tell us, that's fine. Sure. I'm forty one. Forty one. So not quite. Not quite. Or you'd have been too young for it to matter. So yeah, basically. Um not before your time, but wow. I mean the uh book that we're reading in our book club is <clears throat> Absolute Madness. And there's a portion of the text that uh I can't <laughs> I can't even go through and read the whole thing right now, but there's a portion of the text that just at the very beginning Oh, I can't give a page. I'll give you this is on page one of the book and that even for listeners to think about that. This is you don't have to go through and read 50 chapters, anything like that. Right at the very beginning. Uh, absolute madness. Let's see. Bang. OK. She writes, the light came from the tall overhead lamps in the parking lot of the Tops grocery store directly across the street from her house brighter and casting a wider beam than the aging street lights that lined the block. The movement came from a single person, a slight figure who suddenly darted through an opening in the fence that separated the parking lot from her street. Floss Avenue, the man, she had an impression it was a male, wore a dark hooded jacket. As he emerged from the fence, he ran across Floss Avenue in her direction. I'm skipping down a little bit. Despite what Barbara Wozniak would eventually tell them about the loudness of the gunshots, police were not finding anyone at the scene who had heard them at all. The entrance to the Topps grocery store was less than 50 feet from where the Buick sedan was parked. And it goes on to talk about this black 14 year old who was shot and killed in the Topps grocery store parking lot where they employ off duty police officers. Like everything that we heard the past week happened in 1980. Joseph G. Christopher, the 22 caliber killer, went to Buffalo, deliberate east side of Buffalo, killed black males specifically. He went to Niagara Falls and killed a couple of black males there as well. He even went to uh, Manhattan uh, and killed several black males there as well. He wasn't uh, arrested until 1981 uh, and he died in prison. But all of this happened. The New York Times has many, many, many articles uh, of Joseph G. Christopher in handcuffs and being arrested. And oh my God, he was killing all these black people and blah, blah, blah. Buffalo, same newspapers that are in operation now. And no one that I've seen has discussed this at all. All I can conclude either, wow, Gus T. Renegade is amazing, or this is deliberate. And sometimes we don't want an accurate historical telling of events. Like I said, this would be way different if again, East Buffalo tops targeted by white supremacist hunting. And that's the exact language that they used 40 years ago for Joseph Christopher, that he was hunting black males and dark skinned non-white males. Cause he killed a few other non-white males as, uh, as well, but all non-white males, mostly black males. Uh, your your thoughts and you said you hadn't you hadn't heard anything about this is that correct 
No, that's a new story to me. So I appreciate you giving me that context. Absolute Madness in our book club, Catherine Palinero, and there are two books. That's why I said it's not even an excuse. Like you could just go to the library and read all the dozens of news reports on this. There are books uh, that white people have written on this, uh, plural. Or sometimes we don't, as I said, we don't want context. I think that's an act of racism to keep non-white people confused about why these type of events keep happening. Mm-hmm. Anywho, uh, let's say people can keep in mind Peyton Gender because I say that's on every page of this book. Exactly what he was talking about. It's every page of this book. Exact same thing that white people were talking about in the 1700s. Uh, let's see. And since you are in California, that does give me a chance to ask a different one. Now, I started with audio the Royals, they visited Jamaica and there were a number of black people in Jamaica who were saying, hey, reparations, we don't want to come and, you know, say hi and take pictures and do photo ops. There should be repair for what you all have done. Uh, This same conversation has been happening in your state. Uh, We did have from the UK, Kevin Waite as a guest on the program earlier this year and we talked about the reparations task force in California and they have been moving forward and all of these new events about who's going to be, you know, eligible uh, black people that are in the U S and what have you, uh, have you been keeping an eye on that? Have, do you have thoughts on what's happening in your state? Yeah. I've just noticed that it's been kind of progressing forward. I haven't really, I don't think there's been many developments in the last few months, as far as I understand, but you could let me know. I know that that task force has been kind of studying it. I know that they've been trying to assess it from multiple directions and assessing not only sort of, um, issues around African-American slavery, but also with uh, what's happening to the indigenous populations in the 19th century in California. So you probably have a better read on sort of uh, what's going on in the specifics of that task force. But, the, the, you know, the, the L.A. Times certainly reports on it occasionally, but it's not a kind of front page headline often. And so, um, you know, to be honest, I don't feel like it's getting much attention um, right now, at least, I think so much of the news is still dominated by things like COVID, housing insecurity, um, you know, the Ukraine. I, I think a lot of that is washing out or, you know, probably intentionally uh, uh, people are trying to bury some of these discussions around reparations. So I don't think it's actually come to the fore as strongly as it could. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, is that perhaps an omen uh, for the type of support that this is going to receive? And, you know, whenever they come forward with whatever the next steps are going to be. It could be. I mean, you know, California is a it's an interesting state. It's it's got a sort of liberal element to it, but it has a deeply conservative foundation. I mean, this was a pretty conservative state up until you know, the 1990s. And even now it's still, there's really deep entrenchment of conservative values in this state. And there's a, a kind of um, reluctance on the part of liberals to really try to enact any kind of economic justice in this state. And as you probably know, we have the highest levels of incarceration in the country. So, um, you know, there's a way in which I think these there's some good intentions that get put forward in California around some of these issues, but oftentimes there are other forces that really try to, downplay if not eliminate the, the uh, those efforts so it wouldn't surprise me if this didn't come to any kind of um, final final report or if it didn't actually come to any actual um, reparations themselves um, but I think it's it's exciting that there's at least an attempt to study it I mean if you remember Ta-Nehisi Coates's article in the Atlantic from eight years ago you know one of the things that he said was that you know, at the very least, we need to have a kind of conversation and a study of reparations. And that even hasn't even happened, right? I mean, there's been some very small efforts to do that. But it's good to see that there's 
some attempt to try to assess it, but I'm a little bit pessimistic about how far that's going to go or if it's even going to kind of come to fruition. Mm. I am pessimistic as well uh, for, yeah, a number of the same reasons. Um, that's so funny that you mentioned uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates because I was kind of unequivocal about, you know, whether or not I was going to ask this. But since you brought him up, uh, I am familiar. He wrote a number of pieces uh, for The Atlantic Still Does, um, all generally uh, about white supremacy racism. And in one of those pieces, uh, he wrote that white people are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism, but rarely are they pained enough. And I've been asking our white guests uh, over the years now, uh, the first portion of that sentence, um, white people are often greatly and sincerely pained by racism. Uh, you as a white person who studies the history of racism, white supremacy, uh, just based on the white people that you're around, students, colleagues, family, random folks, whatever it is. Do you think that a substantial number of individuals classified as white are often greatly and sincerely pained by racism? That's a good question. I mean, I think that we have the, the white community is obviously broken up into lots of different communities and you have, um, I think, a sort of liberal end of the spectrum who is probably familiar with Ta-Nehisi Coates. They're probably familiar with some aspect of the history of slavery, some aspect of um, kind of maybe the, the the issues that are going around in sort of mass incarceration. Maybe they've read Michelle Alexander, um, but uh, but maybe the, it doesn't, I think, very often translate into actual action. And, you know, there's there's the kind of slacktivism that gets talked about in terms of millennial generations of going onto social media and expressing outrage in those ways, but not really actually doing anything in particular. And I think that sometimes that can be a, an issue across the board that that maybe people are somewhat educated in these areas, but it doesn't translate to, to much action. Um, and then you have people on the other side of the spectrum. I mean, I come from a pretty conservative uh, family, and some of my relatives just think that none of this is really real. I mean, that they, if they watch Fox News, they think that all this is being kind of shoved down people's throats in order to make people feel guilty, but that, you know, things have been proved for people of color, and so what's the big deal? So you, I think there's just a big spectrum of experience where some people um, utterly deny that there's any kind of race problem in America and that the problem in America is that people talk about racism and that inflames racism. And then you get some people who are perhaps much more educated and have a, a pretty refined sense about some of the historical and present-day issues um, around white supremacy, around inequality, um, but that may not necessarily translate to them either trying to do anything or knowing necessarily what to do as a response to it. And of course, you have people that are activists and they do take part and they do um, they do try to um, uh, intervene. But but it's uh, I think a lot of times people are just in their bubble and we're a deeply physically segregated country. And when people don't see um non-white people around them very often, it lessens their motivation perhaps to want to try to do much. Unfortunately, I think there's just a lot of uh, apathy from a lot of people in this country. Hmm. Um, that's why I don't 
think it's you answered uh, my question, Dr. Livesey. And again, like I said, this is one, you know, whatever your view is, that's fine. But this, I think, is important. Just do you think a significant, a substantial number of individuals classified as white are often greatly and sincerely pained by racism? I definitely appreciate the nuance, but that's I didn't hear an answer to my question. So do you think that that's accurate? If it's just a sort of yes or no question, do a significant number of, of whites, are they greatly pained by racism? I would say no. Okay. Asked a lot of uh, individuals classified as white on this program that question. Many times they, that's one where they have had difficulty even answering the question. Uh, and I think that's an important one because, hey, if the answer is no, that's not accurate, phew, that needs to inform how we think about solving this problem, at least in my view. Uh, let's see. Now we can get children of uncertain fortune, mixed race Jamaicans in Britain and the Atlantic family, 1733 to 1833. Uh, again, Toyin mentioned this book reading more important than watching television. Uh, were you trying to solve a problem with this here book, uh, Dr. Livesey? Um, I think to some degree I was. Uh, it's always hard. I think historians are a little bit, because they can sometimes be nervous about trying to be too interventionist in the present. And I think I share a little bit of that. And especially being a white person, um, I didn't want to speak for any communities that were not my own. I just wanted to, um, I, I think, do two things with this book was one, um, try to, I think, bring to light more stories about people of color in the past that uh, at least the fields of 18th century history in the kind of British world and the Atlantic world are really dominated by white people. And I wanted to, to be able to expand the cast of characters that people could read about and learn about and kind of look at a variable of experiences for people of color, uh, not just only those who are enslaved, which is obviously the sort of central story about the Atlantic world in this period of time, but to look at some some other lived experiences for people of color. And so that was kind of one of the first things that I wanted to do. Um, and the second thing was, uh, you know, in Britain today, I mean, th there's a big struggle around issues around the nation and around belonging and around immigration and around race. And uh, uh, for decades, black activists in Britain have been trying to kind of bring to light the inequalities that exist in that country and the sort of racism that exists in Britain. Um, and for the, I think the response for many, many years was, well, this is just a brand new problem. It comes out of the sort of post-World War II generation when you have um, lots of immigrants from uh, the East Indies and the West Indies who come in to take up jobs. Uh, this, and and the, the, the claim by a lot of white supremacists and just lots of Britons in general was, well, Britain had this kind of unending white past up until the 1950s. And then things just kind of transform suddenly. And I wanted to sort of push back against that idea to say, no, there have been non-white peoples in Britain for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And they've been sort of instrumental parts of that history. And so if you look at things like Brexit, um, you know, Brexit was motivated by a lot of factors, but one of which was this kind of fear of immigrants. And so I think if, if you can kind of add to the conversation to say, look, this is not this brand new story. It's not something that's just been this uh, uh, recent intervention. It's something that Britain has always had as part of its history. I think that can give a lot more perspective and context for people who um, 
can, can use that false claim about the past to try to justify present injustices. Hmm. The spirit of Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, white genetic annihilation. You see that all over what Peyton Gendron was saying in Buffalo and replacement theory, so-called. See that with Brexit as well. Too many non-white immigrants, dark people, Syria, and Africans ee, coming in here. Yikes, we got to do something about this. Control our board. Same type of rhetoric that we heard from that guy who was in the White House for a while might be in the White House again perhaps we'll have to see uh, but very common uh, and some of that same as he said some of that same rhetoric on every page of this book at times it seems um, before I get to my next question about the book uh, are you familiar with the book Island in the Sun Harry Belafonte Dorothy Dandridge yeah I've never read it but I'm, I'm certainly aware of it yeah. okay see there see there I uh, watched that way, way back. And then uh, he mentioned uh, Bell, which unfortunately I had seen. And uh, he was talking about how some of these figures get all this attention. And then there are lots, you know, other stories and things like that. And then even some of the themes that are in Island in the Sun, uh, a touch of the tar brush. Have to get to that later on. Uh, anyway, one of the it's right in the title, Mixed Race Jamaicans in Britain and the Atlantic Family. And I mean, really, the title of the book, Children of Uncertain Fortune that kind of tells you all you need to know. And again, we were just reading S.E. Mae Washington Williams, Dear Senator. Now you want to talk about children of uncertain fortune. There you go. Same story, just U.S. side of it. Um, in the book, you talk about the non-consensual power dynamic uh, that is inherent uh, in these sexual pairings between mostly white men uh, and non-white females, black females. Um, this is rape. Yes. Generally speaking, that's what we'd be calling this. Mm -hmm. And I think this is important. Essie Mae Washington Williams. Now her mother, Carrie Butler, uh, she, and it's the exact same thing because she worked in the house, uh, for Jay Strom Thurman. Uh, but she was a child and you see the exact same power dynamic of well, I mean, it would be even if they were the same age, but that power dynamic of an adult white person, adult white man with some teenage uh, black child who's I mean, like the double whammy black child or a black slave uh, that I think is so important. And that gets greatly minimized. Even we got a nonverbal response from Dr. Livesey uh, when I asked about rape that gets greatly minimized. In fact, that's the whole reason we just read S.E. Mae Washington Williams because a different white historian wrote a book about J. Strom Thurmond and totally left out. And it's exactly the same story. White people doing all this complaining. Black people are going to take over. Oh my God. Black people are going to take over. We're outnumbered in South Carolina. What are we going to do? And they're going to rape our women and take over. Blah, blah, blah to write all that and leave out oh yeah by the way Strom Thurmond raped a 15 year old black female when he did know this information and just didn't include it that's the whole reason that we read her book and I just in my view the fact that it's not just rape it's child rape that not being emphasized is a major component of white supremacy of racism because many times these get talked about as though this is some sort of romance or what this frequently child 
great. In fact, let me read one portion from your uh, text before uh, I get your response to that. This is I'm skipping way, way forward in the text. This is uh, I have the e version. So for me, it's uh, page 414 uh, for folks who have the actual physical text. It might be uh, a little different. Let's see. Uh, you write, oh got the wrong book, wrong book. Absolute madness. I'm still talking about uh, what happened in Buffalo. Here we go. Uncert children of uncertain fortune. So for me, it's on page 414. Uh, for folks who have an actual physical copy of the book, I'm sure it'll be a little different. Uh, but you write the child aspect of this all. <sighs> Openly accepted extramarital sex to say nothing of interracial intimacy violated many Britain's sense of propriety but the added political pressures of abolition abolition galvanized those worries evidence given in the parliament by anti-slavery activists between 1790 and 1791 noted that white overseers effectively used black workers as prostitutes and thus diminished their reproductive capacities a 1790 account of Caribbean customs similarly railed against the practice of whites keeping black and mixed race mistresses who from their youth up are taught to be whores. And that's all in quotes, youth up taught to be whores. Uh, but just, am I in error? Cause I think this is really important. This is child rape that we're talking about generally. Uh, so are you asking if, if that's what I'm talking about in the book? No, my point that what we're well, yeah what we're talking about in your book that what we're talking about frequently is child rape and how that needs to be in my view front and center and even how that gets minimized frequently when white people write about this subject matter that's what i wanted you to respond to sure yeah well so the i mean at the very i think the second or third page of the book i mean i i uh, so if, if you're critiquing the way that i present this that's fair we can talk about that um the, the, I think the second or third page of the book, I say that these are, you know, this is sexual violence. I mean, th this is absolutely cases of, of rape. And this is the way that um, terror and violence are enforced on an enslaved population, right? There's many ways to do that. And one of, the, one of those ways is through sexual violence. And, um, you know, I think certainly you could critique the way I talk about some of these relationships in other regards. Um, what I say is that I don't consider any of these relationships consensual by any means. But one of the things I do talk about is the ways in which um, some free women of color and perhaps some enslaved women of color um, within those incredibly restrictive bounds are trying to balance a way of um, uh, providing a pathway for their children to become free and perhaps even providing a pathway for themselves to be free. And so I think if, if the critique of my book, which is fair, you can certainly critique it in those ways, is that it's minimizing that aspect of rape. Um, I think what I'm trying to show is perhaps the small degree of agency that women in these horrific situations might have. But one of the things I try to emphasize is that this aspect of these interracial relationships are ones that are wholly exploitative and, and uh, absolutely get categorized as rape. In a general sense, I get, I'll get to your book specifically, but in a general sense, uh, is that critique accurate that frequently almost without fail when white men and white women write about this subject matter, is that minimize the fact that this is child rape that we're talking about? Is that accurate? Uh, 
That's I think that the, it, it's I think it gets minimized probably. I think that that's changing. I think that there's been more sensitivity to the fact of like calling this what it is. Um, you know, in, in some it's hard in some cases to know what the ages are of some of these women, but it's certainly I would imagine that uh, for most of them, as far as we can tell, they're pretty young ages. Absolutely. We just had Jay Russell Hawkins as a guest on the program. His book was published, I believe, in 2020. Uh, in fact, it might have even been 2021, but super recent. And as I said, he doesn't even mention that Strom Thurmond raped a 15 year old, much less talk about it with, hey, this is child rape. I'd say it's vi- almost without fail uh, with your book specifically. Uh, you do have non-consensual power dynamic, violent. Absolutely. I think there are times even where it's I mean, child rape that even that just saying that I think is we want to talk about making things plain child rape. I say that all the time. Jerry Sandusky, Thomas Jefferson. This is Ch- Strom Thurmond. This is child rape. We would talk about this way different if we're not slipping into this is a romance and mixed race child rapists got and it minimizes the age. Like we're not talking about somebody with quote, so-called agency who is 20, 30, 40. When you're talking about somebody who's 14, 15 for Carrie Butler, like, like I think a whole lot of people would think about this way different. If child rape was how this was classified every time. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, and, the other component that I love, man, oh man, had, did anyone present with you like, hey, uh, Dr. Livesey, your book is is what they call it, uh, heteronormative. Black males certainly had to be sexually abused in all of this. Why do they get no treatment in this text? Sure. I mean, the, black males is in terms of the aspects of rape that you're talking about. That wasn't really central to the story that I was telling. And so it, it doesn't come up. Um, that that's a, sto- a history that's really hard to study, and it's one that historians have just started to probe, at least in terms of Jamaica. Um, the sources are really few and far between, but absolutely there are cases of this happening. And so, uh, you know, with a book, you make uh, certain choices. And for me, that story was one that perhaps could have given some context to it, but it didn't. It doesn't really relate exactly to this idea of the these kinds of uh, uh, families that I'm trying to talk about who are going off to Britain. I see. I see. Okay. Um, are you familiar with the book, uh, the delectable Negro by Vincent Woodard? No, this is great. I'm getting some great book recommendations. I appreciate it. Tell me more. <laughs> Happy to do so in my, actually I've been saying it's in my top 10. This book gets referenced so frequently it might have to get bumped up to top five, which is horrible. That means a reconfiguration. But why is this book in Gus T's top 10? Number one, let's give the full title, The Delectable Negro, Human Consumption and Homoeroticism in U.S. Slave Culture. Title alone is reason to be in top 10. Now, dig down into particulars. I get to bring this book up so many times. One of the main figures in your book, Alato Equiano, is one of the main figures in Delectable Negro. This is one where he talks about people will look at the same source and miss it where it's right there. What does he say about Alato Equiano? Uh, Equiano first encounters white cannibalism through romantic love and companionship with a young white male shipmate. Richard Baker appears in Equiano's narrative and life as a type of young chivalric prince 
working off the stereotype of the African race as effeminate compared to the more masculine marital nature of the Anglophone European, Equiano reconfigures the codes of chivalry by casting himself as a type of male princess and Richard as the saving prince. The Negro was, after all, thought of as the lady of the races, a more effeminate species compared to the Anglo-Saxon. As a specimen of the effeminate species, Equiano fits perfectly into the arms and racial mythology of his white suitor. Richard Baker is an American slave master, a young lad with an excellent education and a most amiable temper. It seems in Equiano's eyes unimportant that Baker owns slaves back in the United States. Although this dear youth had many slaves of his own, yet he and I have gone through many sufferings together on shipboard. Young Richard bonds quickly with Equiano in what the author refers to as a friendship within the plantation culture from which rich comes friendships between young white and black males were always framed by the master slave dynamic. I'm just skipping to give a little bit more flavor of what he says about Equiano. A uh, different portion of the text uh, he writes. Uh, Equiano makes a point of noting that the youth, Richard, would kneel and pray without any other clothes but his shirt and that before he would eat his meals with any of the other men in the cabin, he would first come to me and pray as he called. An incestuous intimacy develops between the youth and his African instructor. The image of the youth semi-clothed underscores his vulnerability, an erotic availability to Equiano and to Equiano's well-beloved master, Jesus Christ. His nakedness implies an infantile trusting state. He presents himself to Jesus Christ as an innocent, powerless child would present himself to an all-powerful, nurturing father. In this case, though, the father is a slave master, an instrument of English imperialism and martial might. Equiano, as effeminate subject, is a natural counterpart to the father he nurtures the youth in his steed. This undercurrent of violence and captivity in the context of Christian conversion is poignantly conveyed in an interchange between Equiano and the youth. I'll stop there, but he goes on quite a bit. That's this is one of the main subjects uh, in the book, among many others. Uh, what do you what do you make of what I just said? Nonsense or something to it? No, it's interesting. I'd never thought about Equiano in those ways. Um, you know, I think that there's lots of ways that the, the kind of study of queerness and homosexuality and even that sort of notion of homosociability is a really important one. It's one that's really being developed quite substantially and I think successfully in slave studies. And um, there's absolutely an element of the same kind of sexual violence against uh, enslaved individuals. And that idea of sort of effeminacy uh, is an interesting one when applied to, to um, people of African descent who are male. Um, a lot of times that, that notion of kind of hypersexuality gets applied to African-American men or Afro-Jamaican men as a way of, um, as you probably know, trumping up ideas or, or wholly fabricating ideas 
about um, sexual relationships with white women. And so uh, there are certainly cases that go back to the Jamaican context where um, uh, black men and white women have relationships and those get excoriated for really sort of dramatic ways. So that, that's, a, you know, the way that you're talking about Equiano and, and, and through that book, it's really interesting. I hadn't thought about those particular moments of his life through that particular lens. But that's what I love about going to in, in history and, and doing a kind of literary analysis. It, it gives really fresh insight into how we can view these individuals in their lives. Delectable Negro, top 10, Dr. Tommy A. Curry, hat tip, the man that talks about that as well. And uh, in fact, uh, colonialism and homosexuality. Uh, Robert Aldrich mentioned that books many times. We should just read that in the book club and get it over with, as well as uh, Thomas A. Foster, our guest on the program, 2020, Rethinking Rufus, Sexual Violation of Enslaved Men. I thought of that one quite a bit while reading mm-hmm. your book as well. Um, one of the main themes that I got from your book, I put it uh, in the subject when I was telling folks about the program, uh, racial classifications. Uh, we've talked about that for years and years and years on the program and how uh, central they are uh, to the system of white supremacy and white people making decisions. In fact, folks recall Ian Hani Lopez, white by law, super, not top 10, but really important work. Uh, and who makes the, these decisions? Seems like it's the same in your book. Uh, you, this is the last time I'm doing page numbers just because, as I said, I have the e-copy and it just confuses folks because they never correspond. So I'm on e-page 89 for whatever that means. Uh, in Children of an Uncertain Future, Chapter 1, uh, Inheritance, Family, and Mixed Race Jamaican, 1700 to 1761. Uh, you write, uh, the assembly could have acted broadly. But instead, it once more made a qualified ruling immediately after reading the complaint. It decided that the Goldings as mulattoes lacked the franchise on its face. This was a comprehensive decision with tremendous repercussions. Free men of color, even those with substantial fortunes, could no longer vote and thus held no stake in the political process. The verdict was unmistakably devastating to the free black community and to the future of Jamaican race relations. That word again. But the assembly stopped just short of complete segregation, realizing the ambiguity of the term mulatto in a place as racially diverse as Jamaica. The assembly next resolved that it should be ascertained who should be deemed mulattoes and how far their corruption of blood should extend (laughs) direct quotes after a quick debate members determined that they should copy the Spanish legal tradition applying the legal category of mulatto only to those who were less than four generations removed from an African ancestor this meant that if one had a great great grandparent who was black yet all other immediate ancestors were white, then that person was <laughs> white by law. <laughs> I can't believe he got two shout outs in Honey Lopez. That book is really good. Uh, I'll stop there, but I, this is one of the main themes of the book, these racial classifications and specifically manipulating racial classifications to strengthen the system of white supremacy racism, unless I missed it. Uh, if you can talk about that and then this specific passage here, like at the beginning, 1700s, you're talking about it's, hey, four generations, everybody's white, you can be a white person. <laughs> can you speak to both of those? 
Yeah, so that that comes out of a, a, a there's some description of Jamaican history probably that would help to explain some of this. So if, I don't want to take up too much of your time. So if, if I'm kind of going on, you can just interrupt me. Um, but you know, th- Jamaica is this really absolutely horrific place in the colonial period where um, the it, it it is this incredibly profitable place for the British Empire and for slave owners because they're farming sugar and sugar is this dominant extraordinarily profitable crop in the 17th and the 18th centuries and so um, you know there's really not much of an effort to create any kind of civil society in Jamaica it's just a spot for just dramatic. Um, um, exploitation of, of Africans who were brought over, um, kidnapped in Africa and forced against their will to to the Caribbean. And about almost three times as many Africans are sent to Jamaica versus the entire 13 colonies combined. And so you have this horrific um, racialized state in which there are 10 times as many enslaved blacks as free whites. And so there's this obvious for if you're a ruling white person, there's this obvious problem, which is that this is a wholly unbalanced society. And how are you going to kind of keep the plantations running and productive if you have this massive disproportion between whites and blacks? And so what I talk about in this first chapter is that there's this attempt at trying to figure out, like, how can we create a white society? And this gets to the very question I think you were leading with at the beginning of our conversation, which is sort of this the 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 fiction of what whiteness means. And in this case, you can see that they're trying to just figure out like, what does whiteness mean? Because they're trying to use whiteness, not as some, some determination about actual ancestry and composition and phenotype and how you look, but really just how can we keep white people at the top of this society? Like what can we do to entrench whiteness? However we define that as being the kind of place that that uh, is in power versus the disempowerment of blackness. And so what they decide is that they are not going to have a kind of one drop rule of racial designation, that they are going to tolerate this very small portion of society who does have African ancestry, but otherwise has a pretty elite background, that they are going to include them in this notion of whiteness. And so that's where we get to this 1733 moment that you're talking about, that you highlighted in that quote, which is that uh, there's this very elite man named John Golding, who's a mixed race man, and he tries to vote. And uh, his neighbors basically just want to disempower him for whatever reason, and most likely because of his African ancestry. It could have also been because of conflicts between them or, or what have you. Um, and so the the legislature, of which is entirely ruling whites, decides that they're not going to allow people of African heritage to have the ability to vote. But they also realize that this is going to perhaps be a problem for this sort of small but important group of, of mixed race people who are who look virtually white in their minds and who have a lot of money and a lot of power, but more importantly, are allied with ruling whites in the subjugation of enslaved Africans. And so they they sort of cut the they cut the Gordian knot in a way by saying, OK, if you are this much percentage African, you have no rights in our society. But if you are a smaller amount percentage African uh, and as long as you kind of um, uh, go along with how we are ruling our society, then we will enable you to be part of that ruling structure. And so it just calls into 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 or puts into relief 
the kind of fabrication of what this notion of whiteness is and what the what the role of whiteness is and the role of whiteness is to perpetuate uh, slavery and to perpetuate abuse. White supremacy, racism, super important. And that history was super important. That was not rambling. I thought that was uh, very important details. Um, I do have to say, though, because you did use the term race relations in the text. And I say that, like, that word should never be used anytime anyone classified as white uses the term race relations in my view that is an act of white supremacy racism and i said this we read james lowen's sundown towns i mean he's thought he uses the word race relations almost a hundred times in that book uh which is kind of lengthy uh with a lot of constructive information but i mean he's talking about billboards that have leave nigger and lots of other colorful phrases that are similar with the same sentiment that is race <laughs> that is terrorism that's buffalo and purges of the sort I mean same thing you're talking about slavery where they're whipping pregnant females and raping females raping children and that is not race relations that is terrorism torture uh, that that term race relations should never ever be used if what we're talking about is a power dynamic I've just I've said that for years say that every time I, I see it I had to read it and to not say something about it not having integrity for the program uh, I do think the information Dr. Livesey shared important in terms of what does it mean to be white this is not biological we can make this up as we go change it as we go the same thing uh, Ian Honey Lopez said in his book white by law and hey we've got these black get back We've got these non-white people, phenotypically, they look pretty close to white, like they've got some money and what have you, a little bit more than the, you know, super dark slave people. Hmm. What do we do to them? Beautiful section of detail right here. This is just, I'm not doing the pages again. Uh, same chapter. Uh, you write for the next 70 years, more than 650 Jamaicans of color would ask for privileged rights. This system of privilege petitioning corrected for the major problem in the generational generational removal exemption class distinction if they did not have enough biological proximity to be considered legally white according to the new definition the elites of color could at least obtain some portion of those rights through individual appeal the privilege bills also encouraged wealthy individuals of color to stay allied with white society as it had done in redefining the legal term mulatto the assembly structured privilege allocations to ensure that subsequent generations would develop increasing biological affinity with Europeans it did so by giving specific stipulations over how these newly conferred rights would extend not only did the petitioner gain added rights but his or her offspring would receive the same rights as well provided that the children's other parent was white so long as privileged Jamaicans stayed politically and sexually loyal to white society then their concessions could become hereditary super important can you give a few extra thoughts there dr livesey 
Yeah, those petitions probably, um, just to give some context on what those are, they, they come out of this um, earlier thing we were mentioning, this this moment in which Jamaica is trying, the Jamaican rulers are trying to um, define what whiteness is and redefine it. And they're also realizing that by putting restrictions on what whiteness means, they're also perhaps preventing certain groups of people who would sort of stay allied to that white ruling class. Those people are now being disenfranchised. So they they create this possibility, this legal possibility through um, legal petitioning to get um, some small numbers of rights. And, and early on, they're, they're actually somewhat significant. You could vote. Um, uh, you could sort of hold certain um, positions and certain employment. But as time goes on, white rulers start to limit what those those privileges mean. Um, but but yeah, the whole idea behind that was that the the white rulers in Jamaica were just utterly terrified of enslaved revolution, and they had every right to be because um, the Caribbean is just a cauldron of enslaved resistance because most islands are like Jamaica. Uh, there's a massive disproportion between enslaved blacks and free whites. Um, so the the country San Domingue, the, the colony San Domingue that becomes the country Haiti, uh, the disproportion is even higher. It's about 14 to one. And you have a major enslaved uprising every sort of year and a half in the Caribbean because it's a wholly unbalanced society. It's a deeply brutal society. Um, and it's a, just a supremely racist society. And so there's regular resistance by enslaved people in the Caribbean. And so for white rulers wanting to try to preserve their fortunes and trying to preserve this plantocracy that they've created, it's really central to them that they have some kind of foundation of a civil society. And because of that, they're they're basically trying to push elite people of color, as I mentioned, as you read, to say, stay both kind of politically allied with this kind of white supremacist culture, but also to stay sexually allied with it, which is to to kind of create a white population out of a quote unquote mixed race population. So it sort of gets to this whole idea of um, just preserving power, um, even if from their perspective, they're having to open up the doors to what whiteness means a little more than, say, people in what becomes the United States. So it's 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 uh, realizing that the sort of the Caribbean has a different um, kind of social dynamic, and because of that, redefining what whiteness means in order to preserve that kind of white ruling class. Mm. That becomes really uh, specific in. Uh, I'll just save that for Tacky's revolt. That's yeah. Super important point right there. Uh, again, our guest, uh, the chair of the history department at Claremont McKenna College in California, not the UK, Dr. Daniel Livesey. Um, you now you did say we could do a little pushback uh, on some of the ways that you describe some of these sexual uh, arrangements, tragic arrangements in the text. Uh, this is still in uh, chapter one. This book is kind of chunky, but it does have a lot of information in it. I guess if we have folks who uh, we have so many listeners, folks in the UK and other places who do have connections uh, to the Caribbean and or just trying to understand white supremacy, racism globally. This would be a good book to add uh, to your collection. Absolutely. If you have, you know, connections to the Caribbean and your so-called family uh, still in chapter one, uh, you write. Uh Oh, yeah. Moreover, white men on the island continue to engage sexually with women of color, undeterred by changing attitudes towards matrimony and family. 
Most of these encounters were part of the violence of slavery. They were crucial to the method of control in that, in that system. Thomas Thistlewood, who arrived on the island in 1750, preyed on enslaved women throughout his life with little consideration of their own wishes. His attacks reminded women and men, both on his plantation and off of it, of the enormous power he wielded, not race relations. Yet, some interracial relationships, including at least one of Thistlewood's, operated as a quasi- normative mar or as quasi normative marriages enslaved and free women of color could leverage a romantic attachment to obtain favors in many cases these could be minor tokens in other ways they could lead to emancipation for themselves and their children these unions retained the unequal power balance inherent in such a racially exploitative exploitative sorry society but they nevertheless occasionally offered greater agency to female partners and a modicum of mutual family obligation. If the mothers of mixed race individuals could bring white partners more closely in line with recognized forms of kinship, then they had a greater chance of advancing their children in Jamaican society. And that's one where I would offer, you know, some pushback like, just the tackiness, uh, like in a lot of different spots. I mean, it's the tackiness of the system, but this is when we're at child rape or I'll even put it this way. Let's see if I'm, if I'm, uh, being too critical, if I'm not being logical here, where you say enslaved and free. Now that even says a lot right there. Now enslaved and free women of color could leverage a romantic attachment to obtain favors. Let me ask it this way could a quote unquote free woman of color decline any sort of sexual advance from a white man, white woman, white child in Jamaica without repercussion? No. Yeah. I think that that's absolutely a case where they don't really have those options. That's why it's child rape and that's where I say well, we we veer off into because we got it that's why I read the whole section right I didn't try and you know just cherry pick let me give them the whole part where well, you do include inherently the violence racially exploitative but that's where I mean where interracial relationships I can't even say no even if I'm a so called free I'm not even talking about the, the people that are in shackles and all that. even if I'm a so called free woman of color I can't even no I'm good you know I'm not interested get on out of here I can't even all of this is right and frequently it's child rape that's what i mean and even if we're talking about leveraging like i'm gonna take you what did you say leveraging for minor tokens how much agency is that yeah that's a i mean this is an issue that i think has been one that's debated quite a bit i mean the the point you're making is a good one and i i'm not uh i'm not going to deny that it's hard to talk about these relationships, right? And there's um, there's a challenge in 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 trying to talk about them in ways that acknowledges the brutality and the the horror and the sexual violence and the lack of options. All those things that you mentioned, all those things are true, absolutely. Um, 
But at the same time, there's uh, there's lots of debate within scholarship around this. It's not as if I think this is uh, a particular thing that I've done or that it's it's uh, um, it, there's full agreement about this. But how how do you try to tell the story of an enslaved woman or a free woman of color um, that allows her to live in this world where she um, not necessarily is making choices that are fully available to her, but she's trying to navigate that system. And it's a challenge. And, and uh, of course, yeah, I am not going to discount that, that I, I wrote this in a perfect way or that I was able to kind of convey those relationships properly. Um, but when you read the sort of letters from these women, when they have the opportunities to write letters, is that you see that they're trying to navigate these relationships in some ways. Um, and so I, I think that fundamentally what you're hitting on is just the, um, the ultimate challenge about writing about slavery and writing about um, any kind of attempt of, of enslaved people or free people of color um, having kind of an impact in their own life. So I take your point. Um, I'm not going to push back too hard against it. I think that what you're saying is true. Um, but I also think that uh, once you kind of acknowledge that, I think there is something interesting in trying to consider how people of color are trying to structure their lives within this really deeply brutal system. Context of white supremacy. Again, child rape i think that would i think that alone just calling things what they are child rape i think that would greatly help us in trying to process and do the mathematics of how much agency does one have if you're going to be raped make the best out of it make the best out of any children that come from this child rape but i think that would great as opposed to because it's they make tacky books we've had non-white authors come on they write whole tacky books plantation romance and all the, oh my God, Strom, that's what they said about uh, Strom Thurmond and Carrie Butler, 15, 23, I said, really, it could be 25 and 25, whatever, but 15 and 23, white man and black female, she can't say no, she's also a free person of color, Carrie Butler at 15, and this is a romance. It does not. Well, I would, I would not describe these as romances, and I don't think I did describe them as romances. Um, uh, the that you know the they're described in the literature as romances those are, are aren't ones that i would i wouldn't apply that that label you did say romantic attachment that's you know now really really anywho uh and even more to the point i can just skip ahead to the next page i love it when i don't have to say anything i just read the book to make my point skipping ahead you write uh Make sure I give in 1748, the assembly allowed children, both male and female of eight years of age and upwards to save deficiency. This indicated a greater interest in established families settling in Jamaica rather than simply adult males. Less than a decade later, the marriage acts effects became apparent. Jamaica's 1757 deficiency bill included an allowance that every man's wife and each of his children born in wedlock shall be allowed to save a deficiency, considering that almost no white men married women of color despite its legality. The assembly did not direct this clause toward interracial couples. Instead, it mimicked the wider Atlantic interest in promoting proper marriage and cohabitation and in reducing births out of wedlock white 
legitimate. That's like synonymous uh, synonyms. White legitimate families still stood at the pinnacle of Jamaica's most desired settlers. That's what I mean about the inherent tackiness. This is not a romantic attachment. If white people aren't marrying, if you non-white be like, this is just, you know, me having my fun and woohoo, uh, taking advantage, exploiting sexually non-white people. This is not, oh, let's get married and, and do this unless I'm miscalculating. Can you, oh, and can you give an, any historical context around the deficiencies just to make sure that listeners catch that as well? Sure. The deficiency laws are ones that um, basically kind of give uh, tax exemptions to people who have um, children, sort of white legitimate children in the island. So it's basically trying to increase the amount of white reproduction to increase the size of the white population. So it's it's basically kind of tax incentives to try to increase uh, the white populace. So that's the that's the background to deficiency laws. Um, the one thing you kind of mentioned was, or I can't remember the way that you framed it, but um, the the relationships were sometimes very long term. That doesn't that doesn't negate anything that you're saying about the sort of inequality. But um, the, I would say that there, in some cases, these were not just sort of like a quick relationship. They could be, in some cases, decades long. Um, and again, it doesn't deny the the abuse within that, but that's just uh, one kind of final thing to add on to that is that these could sometimes be long-term relationships. Some people do have a favorite whore. That was the term used in the book, a favorite side piece uh, that Carrie Butler and Strom Thurmond from 15, they were together for a long time. Thomas Jefferson, Sally Hemings, they were together for a long time. Rape, white supremacy, racism every day, whether it was 10 years, five months. God, I think that is important for the nuance, but that does not change the power dynamic. And, and again, nothing has changed. I can't say no at any point. Hey, this is this is rape. I'm not feeling this anymore. You're still owning slaves. And so part of all this slaveocracy down here in Jamaica, like I don't want to be a part of like that's not I mean. Uh, you can tackies revolt. So important. That's why I said about this is so important. And even for listeners, you see some of this now concern about white population and incentivizing white births. Don't you all see some of this now for listeners? Yes, maybe you can let Gus know if I'm talking crazy too. Uh, Tacky's revolt said I wasn't doing page numbers. Uh, Super important aspect of Jamaican history. I don't think I don't know a whole lot about Jamaican history. I'm ignorant, still learning. So all this was uh, news to me, uh, but this had a huge impact on racial classifications and how we're going to run uh, the operations in this part of the world. Uh, you write, let me see this, not doing the page numbers, <laughs> immediate reactions to the revolt, however, did not bode well for race, racial toleration. Numerous theories prevailed about the origins of the upheaval. One rumor attributed the start of the conflict to a personal slight. Oh, we talked about this before. <laughs> he mentioned this already. The rebellion in Jamaica of 1760 had its rise from a white servant or overseer having taken the wife of one of this Cormanti people to his bed. In this retelling, an interracial sexual encounter sparked the revolutionary fire. 
the prominent Jamaican historian Edward Long in his 1774 assessment shared this suspicion. Having lived on the island during the conflagration, he reported that soon after destroying the first plantations, the insurgents ravished a mulatto woman who had been an overseer's kept mistress. Such accounts beyond any potential veracity indicate that white Jamaicans might have attributed Tacky's revolt at least partly to interracial unions. This version of events helped ignore the inherent violence of the slave system and the most fundamental and obvious motivations for an insurrection. I'll stop there. This is this was a widespread thing attributing a slave uprising to they wanted to ravage the, they didn't even say white women, mulatto females. Yes. Yeah, no, this I, I, I highlighted that to just show the kind of ridiculousness of this claim. Right. Um, it's not based on any kind of evidence. And uh, when you're looking at Tacky's revolt is this really massive enslaved uprising, a series of enslaved uprisings. Uh, Vincent Brown at Harvard and uh, has written really uh, effectively about that. He has a great book about it. Um, and it's it, yeah, I, I, the reason why I found that passage so interesting is that it it really um shows the ways in which this obsession with um, with sexuality, with sexual violence, with kind of these interactions, these sexual interactions between whites and people of color are, are sort of dominating the way that Jamaicans, white Jamaicans are talking about their society. And so even in this case where it's so obvious that we have um, enslaved people rising up to kind of gain their freedom and to and to demonstrate just how horrific their lives are, there's still this reduction into a sort of a sexual politics. And it shows a kind of obsession by white rulers with that particular issue. Do you see in your studies, you see the same uh, sexual obsession uh, with black males from whites worldwide? I just said at the beginning, Strom Thurmond, the letters were poor. We have read them. They had tons of them. Oh, my gosh, the Negro children are going to rape our black students. Do you see this worldwide? And if so, what what do you make of this amongst individuals classified as white globally? Yeah, I, I think it happens maybe perhaps with a little less frequency when we're talking about enslaved revolutions. But when you're talking about kind of uh, lynchings at the end of the 19th century, and the early 20th century, so many of those, as you know, um, are um, these these made up accounts of sexual violation of black men against white women. And so it becomes this very easy method by which to attack African-Americans and to to use that in order to to punish and kill and and maim and, and go after whole communities. So I, I think it happens with a little less frequency when we're talking about uh, enslaved uprisings. Oftentimes those get attributed to um, outside agitators um, and, and things like that. But but certainly when we're talking about the period of reconstruction and, and into the 20th century, you see that happening all the time. And, you know, it, it, there's still ways in which it, it comes about into the present. Dylan Stormroof, uh, amongst many. Yeah. I think that guy got in the White House talking about rapists at the border and a lot of other ways as well. Um, with uh, Taggy's revolt, uh, regardless of the inspiration, I don't think it was 
raping mulatto women. But with Tacky's revolt, uh, you talk about how we start to see changes, major changes like, hey, we cannot have this sort of thing happening all the time. We already talked about massive anxiety. This is a tiny population of individuals classified as white in Jamaica, where they are greatly outnumbered, as you said, by individuals classified as black and their population just keeps going up, keeps going up, keeps going up. Um, with Tacky's revolt, it's, hey, we got to do something. We got to change some things. And they start saying, hey, psh, inheritances got to go. We cannot have all these folks leaving all this money to these colored uh, non-white people with a white parent uh, because that's contributing to the problem. Uh, can you kind of give us the logic of why they felt they had to make this change? Yeah. So to kind of go back to that earlier period we were talking about in the 1730s, Again, what's happening is there's this sort of attempted experimentation with what whiteness means you know, and, and this attempted belief that if you can just sort of empower people who are mostly white, even though they have some African ancestry, again, I'm, I'm using this all with kind of the, the square quotes of what white, whiteness means. But um, if you can have these people who have a little bit of African ancestry but are still mostly white, uh, mostly European um, then that's that's okay. That 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 fits our our need for a kind of white uh, uh, settler society that can push back against um, and at least kind of keep control of an enslaved population. Um, but when Tacky's revolt happens, there's this proclamation, at least amongst many of the white rulers, that one of the reasons why this revolt happened, you know, amongst the many other excuses that they use is that there's too much familiarity between whites and blacks and that um, slave owners have in fact been too indulgent of enslaved people. Um, you know, again, it, there's just this total refusal to try to acknowledge um, how brutal slavery is. And because ultimately that threatens the whole plantation system to acknowledge how awful slavery is. So instead they have to find these other, um, supposed reasons, and one of them is, well, there's there's too much interaction between whites and blacks, and so the, the white legislature starts to go after interracial relationships and saying, uh, these, these sexual relationships, and saying we should not have this kind of uh, population of color who has both European and African ancestry because they have divided loyalties, um, they're not fully white, um, they're, they're not going to be able to really take part in white society in the way that we originally had thought, and they're getting these huge inheritances from their white fathers, you know, because these sugar plantations are incredibly profitable. Um, what can we do to prevent them from gaining too much economic power? Well, we have to limit how much they can inherit. And so there's this law that's passed the year after Tacky's revolt, um, which says that uh, uh, illegitimate children of color can only inherit 2,000 pounds, which at the time, it's not, it's not an unsubstantial sum. You can still live pretty well off of that but it's nowhere near the inheritances that people were getting people were getting fifty thousand pounds a hundred thousand pounds um just huge enormous sums and so what it's trying to do is it's trying to kind of limit the economic power that this free population of color is slowly accruing over the course of the 18th century um and so it's again just an attempt at trying to um retain power within the kind of white ruling class in Jamaica. Mm. Context of white supremacy. Um, I thought that was uh, also, again, just showing how you refine the system. One, you can't be ignorant about racism, white supremacy, and then going and make all of these changes, but to be able to refine, make changes and even look at this, I think they were, you were writing in the book specifically to say, Hey, we have to make the distinctions between individuals classified as white 
and all of those who are not, we have to make this distinction greater. Uh, we can't have it where we've got these folks who are racially ambiguous and are they with us? Are they not with us? They've got to cut all that and make it really clear what it means to be white and where the line of demarcation is. Did I read that correctly? Yeah, that's the right way to, to summarize it. Context of white supremacy. Uh, this is uh, a few pages later. Now we're still in chapter one. That's why I said there's so much detail. Uh, you write, uh, Stan Hope responded to the board in a long letter. He prefaced his remarks, though, with an extensive statement on the general condition of Jamaican society. This introduction struck the normal chords of white settler failure and degradation. Blacks severely outnumbered whites that cried. Again. And again, that's why I said that's what Peyton Gendron was complaining about. Uh, the white population continually decreased. The island did not contain enough European women. And this is all in quotes. Mulattoes, especially the females, controlled the colonists, dissolute minds, and so forth. Here, even at the behest of Jamaican officials, Stan Hope painted a conventional and hyperbolic portrait of debauched white Caribbean society one familiar to most Britons, although Jamaicans had been tasked with preventing their posterity from being overpowered by mulattoes, Stanhope declared the mission abandoned. Uh, now you include like, you know, a lot of exaggeration going on here, but there is a consistent theme of man, these white settlers, you're supposed to be going over here. You practice white supremacy racism you run the plantations you get up the population of white people and all that and instead you all are over here frolicking around raping children and producing all of these no count monkey mulatto children and what have you like man this is a disgrace you're not even being good white people like how widespread was this sentiment about what was happening in jamaica yeah there's this general belief in britain at the time that jamaica is this really horrific place um less so because people in Britain are sympathetic towards enslaved individuals and more that it's seen as a place where uh, the sort of European and, you know, quote unquote white population is acting completely out of step with what they sh how they should be acting and outside of the decorum of how Europeans are supposed to act. And there's this, this notion that because there's so many of these, sexual uh, interactions and sexual violence against enslaved women, that it shows that white men have just lost their morals, that they uh, uh, have abandoned their Christian principles, that they have no respect for matrimony, that they're just indulging in their passions. Um, and that this is just almost kind of, you know, for an American context, it's like the Las Vegas of the, the British empire where just anything goes and, and uh, there's no, there's no kind of um, moral center to that area. And so that idea is really kind of dominant um, uh, into the 19th century about the West Indies. And so because of that, that's often used against the colony and its rulers to say, well, they're not really um, they're not really acting like proper Britons and they're not actually kind of protecting the, the sort of proper distinctions of what whiteness means. Um, so th this kind of gets into again, sort of this idea of, of just the fabrication of what whiteness is supposed to be and, and who belongs in that category. Mm. I thought this was important. I think you just mentioned that, but that becomes one of the reasons uh, that, Hey, we need to let this slavery thing go. Cause this is just a bunch of debauchery and you all over here having all this sex with these non-white people. Uh, and then also 
man, like they're bringing all of these dark people over here. Like, and we're going to have more of these tackies revolts because white people are so outnumbered uh, in the cop that these start to become some of the reasons like, hey, maybe we should let this slavery thing go. Not we care about black people. Did I misread that? Well, I don't think that they're wanting to let slavery go because they think that Jamaican whites are not um, running their colony properly. I mean, there's lots of reasons why um, emancipation occurs, uh, one of which is that um, the British Empire simply realizes that they can turn to exploitative labor outside of the Caribbean. So they, they begin to um, depend upon the, the production of of cotton in the United States, which is just produced by a different group of enslaved people. And they turn to uh, the East Indies where there's tremendous exploitation of the populations there. Um, and so there's just sort of new markets that enable the British to slowly kind of turn their eyes away from, from the enslavement in their own, in their own empire. It's not, I think one could say that there are certain groups of people that do have a sort of reform humanistic mindset about the, the problems of slavery. But the reality is that economically it's, it's becomes quite easy for the British to no longer depend upon West Indian slavery um, by the early 19th century. And so it's not really um, humanitarianism that drives that it's really kind of the economics of, of the global economy in the 19th century. Different method of practicing racism. Sure. Context of white supremacy. Uh, Sliding over chapter two, early abolitionism and mixed race migration into Britain, 1762, 1778. Uh, this is skipping down the list. examples of this latter category where individuals recorded as the natural or reputed offspring of a white father. The terms natural and reputed denoted illegitimacy, which almost universally <laughs> meant children of color in the case of Jamaica. Now, wow, I'd said before, legitimate and white are synonyms. And then, wow. Anyway, uh, most of the children, most of these children, sorry, were also noted as the sons and daughters of housekeepers, in quotes, who were with little exception, free or enslaved mistresses of color. Pause again. That was Carrie Butler, 15, Essie Mae Washington Williams' mother, J. Strom Thurmond. Continuing, among all wills, these legacies for British-bound Jamaicans of color are modest. After all, the majority of mixed-race children not only went unacknowledged in a will, but unacknowledged by fathers altogether. But as Table 2 shows, nearly one of every five white male testators who cared for mixed-race children in Jamaica either sent them to Britain or desired that they should go. This migration then was not an idiosyncratic and episodic phenomenon, but rather routine practice. And I think there are two uh, important points you can touch on both of them uh, for us, Dr. Livesey. Uh One, widespread, not in this where again, where I go back to romantic and all that, child rape it's synonymous with illegitimacy and you talk about how this it kind of increases uh through the years just illegitimate non-white all of that means the same thing like i said white legitimate 
And then the second compulsion, even though, as you said, most of these folks are not acknowledged in the will or otherwise, you did have uh, a significant, not most, but a significant number of these non-white offspring with a white parent who did get to go across the pond, go to Britain. And you even talk about how part of that is a part of the whitening process to get away from the terrorism, white supremacy in Jamaica. So if you can kind of hit on both of those points, Dr. Livesey. Sure. Yeah. Well, this is kind of what the heart of the book is about, which is um, this this migration of, of mixed race children from Jamaica to Britain. And um, the to deal with that second part first, um, you know, what I was wanting to show is uh, kind of the ways that notions of race and family intersected and how they became part of the ways that um, uh, people talked about race and how um, also just the ways that these uh, very elite people of color, you know, they, they, they are sent to Britain because there's really very few schools. There's only one school in Jamaica in the 18th century, Wilmer School, which is still around, actually. And um, so there's there's really little opportunity for these children to have any kind of education. Um, there's intensive racism, as you could imagine, in a place like Jamaica. Um, and there's really not a lot of job opportunities. And so uh, what happens is that a lot of the, the mothers of these mixed race children basically are trying to lobby uh, their parents, their, their children's father to send their children off to Britain for an education um, just to escape the, the colony or maybe to get sort of a training in some kind of profession, maybe before they come back to Jamaica, uh, perhaps to become, you know, a, a planter all their own. It's, it's, it's sort of unclear what their ultimate goals are for their kids in, in many cases. And so, um, you know, I've followed about 360 or so individuals who took that that journey and uh, just sort of seeing not only kind of what their experiences were, the kind of racism that they faced, not only in Jamaica, but also in Britain, um, but also sort of what public reaction was to them in this 18th century period, where a lot of people in Britain uh, didn't have a lot of interaction with uh, individuals of African heritage, and, and especially for their relatives who are now suddenly looking upon um, a, a niece or a nephew or a grandchild who looks like their family, but also has African ancestry and maybe has darker skin. How do they understand what all of this means? And so that's really what the, the center of the book is about and, and tracing those children. And it's really in part about the importance of the, the notion, the definition of family. And so uh, one of the many things that these mixed race migrants have to struggle against is not only the fact that they have this African heritage, which for people in Britain is seen as as somewhat disqualifying uh, for them to be part of a, of a white family, but also the fact that they come out of illegitimate unions, quote unquote, illegitimate unions, right? Uh, they don't come out of um, parents who have been married. And so in Britain at that time, and in sort of the sort of British empire at this time, uh, illegitimacy is largely seen as a, as a um, disqualifying status to have in terms of rising through the ranks, or it can certainly diminish your status, uh, not in all cases, but in a lot of cases. And so that becomes just one more of a battery of factors that makes it really, really challenging for these Jamaicans when they travel abroad. Hmm. Context of white supremacy uh, in writing about, you said one of the main themes of the book, how these uh, non-white people with a white parent uh, and them making this migration uh, to Britain, uh, you write, and I said, this is part of the whitening process. Uh, you write in 1773, George Hall, a prosperous Jamaican carpenter and millwright demanded of his mulatto son, Francis in Britain that 
If he will marry a white woman, he shall be entitled to one third of my said property. But in case he should live in a lewd way with any, imagine that now, really imagine, uh, live in a lewd way with any woman. He shall only be entitled to only a few slaves End quote. Hal set the same stipulations for his daughter. He might've enjoyed an unsanctioned relationship in the colonies, but Fearful that his children would take similar steps in Britain, Hall regulated their marriage prospects intensely. This prerequisite reflected the importance of matrimony, even if not especially for illegitimate Jamaicans of color. I would say especially marriage would would bestow the legitimacy these migrants lacked, giving them entree to social respectability in Britain. Moreover, it would reorient the racial heritage of subsequent British descendants. Mixed race men in particular had little or no chance of marrying white spouses in the colonies. Moving to Britain increased the prospect of a biological whitening of the family line. That's what we talked about before, how you can structure a system so that everything everyone supports white supremacy racism but this is both within the will and then for your progeny go across the pond that way you can get a white woman maybe and things will be better down the road yeah and that's really the goal that that uh many of them have not only because they want to see um those fortunes lodged within a quote-unquote white family but the hopes that those children will then come back and kind of increase the size of the white population in in jamaica so yeah it's really this attempt at kind of social engineering through this population of color that can um, keep this system of slavery intact and keep that that system of control flourishing Hmm. you this is on page 241 where I keep saying I feel like I hear exactly the same concerns that Peyton Gendron uh, has been or was talking about a few weeks ago in Buffalo Uh, this is chapter 2 still early abolitionism and mixed race migration into Britain Uh, you write even reform minded Britons struggled to accept the biological outcome of an increased black presence Granville Sharp, the lawyer who would later help to shape Somerset's legal strategy, wrote of similar discomfort the year after Fielding's publication. He roundly condemned slavery, especially in Britain, but also disparaged the national inconvenience of Caribbean planters increasing the stock of black servants in this kingdom, which is already much too numerous. Equally disturbing to the abolitionist was the mixed people or mulattoes produced by the unavoidable intercourse with their white neighbors in England. Thus, even among those advocating for black residents, the issue of slavery in Britain inevitably led to demographic hand wringing. To them, British slaves did not represent a political threat but instead a biological one. As I said, this to me sounds very similar. What I was hearing replacement theory and all that with uh, 
Peyton Gendry, even Dylan Storm Roof, a lot of these concerns of non-white people, threat of Negro domination. Uh, can you talk about this from the Britain perspective and having these dark people invade, how they're seeing it? Yeah, and that's a great quote to kind of get us talking about it. Um, so the, there's this really important decision in the British legal system in 1772. And if you've read the 1619 Project, this comes up a lot as part of the reasons why um, uh, you know, Hannah Jones believes that there's uh, that slavery is instrumental for the American Revolution is that there's this decision in 1772 that uh, says, well, um, an enslaved person cannot be forced against their will to go back to the Americas. Um, and this is seen as being kind of an anti-slavery decision by the, the, by the English courts. And this decision comes out of a particular case of a man named J- James Somerset, who was an enslaved Virginian who had gone to Britain, uh, really forced to go to Britain with his master um, and uh, a man named uh, uh, Stuart. And Stuart wanted to return back to to the Americas, uh, but Somerset wanted to stay in Britain. He did not want to go back to slavery, and he had uh, been able to kind of make connections to the black community in London, um, and he was able to connect to uh, Granville Sharp, who was a lawyer in London. And so Sharp represents Somerset and becomes this really important person in uh, getting Somerset his sort of habeas corpus rights. And, um, and Sharp becomes a sort of important abolitionist um, even after this case but even within these protections that he's trying to give to somerset and to try to create some sort of uh, legal identity for enslaved people in england uh, there's nevertheless these kind of um, really terrible proclamations that he says which is that he's kind of worried about the size of the black population in britain and because he's um, connected to this black British community, he's seen that there is a sort of substantial black community in London. And he's himself is kind of worried about what this future is. And it kind of gets to what you were just saying, which is that there becomes this demographic appeal for the need to protect whiteness in Britain and to sort of do what they can to sort of prevent um, any intermixture between African and European peoples, um, because this is seen in their minds as being uh, a kind of uh, a transformation of their society. And this is a period of time in which the whole idea of English nationhood and a sort of national culture is just starting to emerge. And so their national identity is really starting to form around this concept of whiteness. And so if you have a black community who in some cases are having relationships with white individuals and having mixed race children within those relationships, um, it threatens their notion of what this kind of white society is supposed to be. So even amongst the the allies, the quote unquote allies of, of the black British community, they themselves are expressing this concern about what the demographic future of Britain is going to be. So it doesn't really bode well for the kind of racial um, uh, equality that's being expressed even amongst anti-slavery advocates. They themselves oftentimes express pretty racist ideas within their their protests against slavery. So-called allies, indeed. Uh, Am I being uh, reckless or inaccurate in saying, wow, this seems to be the exact same type of concerns echoed by Peyton Gendron? I think that they're certainly connected. I, I think that 
the idea of kind of replacement theory, which is which is the, the sort of main idea behind the uh, the Buffalo shooter, is is a slight. I mean, it's a, it's a modification of those ideas. I don't think that anyone in Britain at the time thinks that uh, the white population is going to be replaced, but I think there's a belief that it's going to maybe the words they would use would be is going to taint the the kind of lineage of the British and. There's a quote, maybe maybe it's one you would would read later on, but from Edward Long, who's this really important Jamaican uh, writer. He's this deeply, deeply racist person who um, he's living in Britain at the time of the Somerset decision. And he says, well, this is just going to cause all the slaves in the empire to come to Britain because they'll be able to take up their freedom knowing that the British courts will protect them. And what we're going to have is just all these mixed race children because these black uh, men are going to um, meet up and, and have families with white women and we're going to be turned into the Portuguese who are much darker in complexion and not only is it going to change the way we look it's going to make us a more degenerate and a more um, kind of immoral people so those ideas um, are, are certainly uh, uh, if not cousins they're close siblings to the idea of of the sort of replacement theory that's that's currently being expressed on Fox News and by the Buffalo shooter. So, um, yeah, I think that there is certainly a connection between those two. We were in lockstep there. Dr. Livesey, I was right on the page. Cause I, I fe- do you, have you heard of, uh, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing author? Uh, she's a third generation physician. She passed away in 2016. Have you heard of her or no? Was she, was she the one that was uh, murdered in the, um, shooting or am I mistaking her for someone else? Oh no, sir! Uh, she passed away in 2016. Oh, sorry. Uh, okay, sorry. Yeah, and no, uh, tell me more about her. Yeah. Yes, sir. She uh, she was a physician, general, and child uh, psychiatrist. Uh, she wrote a book <clears throat> called "The ISIS Papers: Keys to the Colors," and her theory uh, about why white supremacy, racism, is practiced by individuals who classify themselves as white uh, is fear of white genetic annihilation uh, that basically exactly what's <laughs> I can read the passage from your book this is her theory right here she says exactly what you said Mr. Long as an over as overinflated as Long's comments were his sense of an impending corruption of English blood influenced social critics and individual opinions alike Samuel Estwick who had lived in Barbados and would later serve as the island's London agent called for a ban on slave importation into England based on similar reasons. See, that's what I said about this is depriving part of the concern about we need to get rid of this because it's too many dark people Uh, writing at the same time as his Jamaican peer. He believed that this prohibition would preserve the race of Britons from stain and contamination an Antiguan absentee concurred claiming in the same year that such an edict would save the natural beauty of Britons from the Morisco tent. I didn't even know what that meant. Like I'm ignorant. I had to go look up and say, Oh, Moorish tent. Like, Oh my goodness. They're talking about the Moorish invasion of things. That is, I mean, Dr. What if she was with us, Oh man, she would have the biggest, this is her theory. Exactly. That this is the reason Buffalo, Dylan Storm Roof, slavery, all of this is rooted in white fear of genetic annihilation from non-white people. And that the reason the shooter in Buffalo targeted black people like Dylan Roof and like even in your book where you talk about this buffer class of these non-white people who are lighter 
uh, the reason for black people, the darkest non-white people being targeted is because they represent the greatest threat of white genetic annihilation to individuals who classify themselves as white. That's her, her theory. What do you, what do you think about that being her, her reason as for why racism, white supremacy is practiced as a global system? I think that's interesting. I, I think there's multiple threads as to why white supremacy is practiced, but I think that that idea of the notion of um, genetic annihilation is certainly one of them. And I think on top of it kind of connected is this idea of a kind of cultural annihilation, which you see obviously so predominant in this notion of, of replacement theory, which is that the, what the, the quote unquote values of, of the West are going to be slowly eroded through this demographic change. So absolutely. I think that's a central thread to um, the, the whole notion of white supremacy in the present. Did after the American Revolution, did you write about in Britain, people classified as white being concerned because now that they were, uh, forgive the length, cut off uh, from the American colonists with their huge population of individuals classified as white. Now that they're cut off from that, now they're getting darker non-white people. Yeah, absolutely. The British Empire, it does change demographically. I mean, you have about 2 million white people that are suddenly taken out of the British Empire, and the empire is now largely composed of people of color. So in the Caribbean, in India, um, so so that does, it does transform this notion about what the empire is and how it should be ruled and who the subjects are. Um, so I think that idea gets expressed a little less explicitly um, at the time, but you see those kind of undercurrents within the ways that the Britons are talking about not only themselves, but also the future of their empire. Certainly. Mm. Uh, Star six, one last few moments that we have Dr. Livesey with us. Uh, I changed my highlight color. I got to get this one. And this is uh, chapter three lineage and litigation, 1783 to 1788. Uh, So you make sure I'm not giving missing out on anything. Uh, we'll start there. If Edward Morris did reveal this. Uh, yeah, I got to go back and get the full context. Uh, a correction about Mrs. Cater in the next day's edition, however, might have caused some surprise. Tipped off by one of its readers, the Herald stated that the woman's surname was actually spelled Cater, C-A-T-O-R, and that she was the reputed daughter of a West Indian merchant deceased by a mulatto woman in Jamaica who determined to quit this country and try her fortune in the East. In fact, Sarah Cater was the daughter of the late John Moores and was now married to the East India Company merchant William Cater. The Herald did not identify its informant, but most likely the culprit was Edward Moores, Sarah's English cousin, currently in the middle of suing her and her siblings for control over John Moores' Jamaican fortune. If Edward Moores did reveal this information, he had a clear purpose. In his lawsuit, Edward alleged that his cousins could only receive 2,000 pounds apiece from their father's estate owing to Jamaica's 1761 inheritance cap against mixed race individuals. The rest, he claimed, belonged to him and his legitimate relatives, proving that Sarah and her siblings were by law mulattoes was essential to win the case. Not only did the suit isolate the Jamaican Mooreses from British kin, it challenged their ability to assimilate 
both through reputation and economic standing into metropolitan society. Thought this was important. Multiple reasons. We talked about this capping and limiting and how things got harsher uh, against non-white people as white people said, hey, we need to, as you said, the idea of a nation is being kind of galvanized around the concept of white supremacy, racism, what it means to be white. Uh, and so as this is happening, you're seeing more animosity, more hostility towards non-white people coming to Britain. Certainly he has a financial, you know, <laughs> motivation, but hey, 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 she's non-white. All of this is ours. Certainly that counts for a lot too. But seeing this widespread at this time, that's one component. And then the as this is happening, these non-white people who are coming to Britain being cut off uh, and not being able to get that standing because they're having that taint of illegitimacy that we talked about. Yeah, that, that chapter looks at a number of different inheritance lawsuits between uh, mixed race migrants to, uh, from Jamaica to Britain and their white relatives in Britain. And the, the case that you highlight is a really interesting one because um, this cousin of theirs, of these mixed race migrants, uh, is using that inheritance cap, as you mentioned, to try to say, uh, look, they are not entitled to this massive fortune. And I think that uh, John Morse's fortune was something like 120,000 pounds. It was a really astronomical amount. I mean, this, is, this would be like tens of millions of dollars and, in, in the present day. So, so they're really fighting over extraordinary sums of money. And in this case, the cousin is trying to use this Jamaican colonial law to say they are not entitled to this. And not only that, they should be considered to be mulattoes. Now, that term has no legal definition in England. So it only has a legal definition in Jamaica. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to kind of castigate them within British society as being, again, quote unquote, tainted by this African heritage. And what's interesting is that he had grown up, he had spent a lot of time in Jamaica, he had lived with this family, there there was no, this is really just a bald face attempt to kind of wrest away his cousin's fortune, because he knows there's this colonial law um, that he can use against them. And so this chapter really documents the ways in which kind of white relatives were using colonial legislation, which had all of these racial components to them in a way that English law didn't. English law doesn't really have any kind of statutes that have uh, uh, um, elements of race within them. All that is really worked out in colonial legislation. So they're importing this colonial notion of racial difference into Britain through these inheritance lawsuits. And it's part of this general transformation in Britain where they're importing these kind of colonial ideas of race to Britain. And what you're seeing then is for these mixed race migrants who are going to Britain in part to flee the sort of racial animus that's going on in Jamaica, they're finding that those racial ideas are being replicated and re reinforced uh, even in Europe when they, when they land there. And so despite the fact that they're trying to establish themselves in this kind of new world, uh, they're still subject to these kind of colonial notions of difference. Mm. No place to run uh, in the system of white supremacy. Uh, and as you said, the, the entire notion of nationhood galvanizing around what it means to be white, white supremacy, racism. Uh, in, in fact, so much so, I, this is what reminded me, Island in the Sun, Harry Belafonte, Dorothy Dandridge. Dorothy, you're just talking about Dorothy Dandridge. Uh, you write, although increasingly distanced 
From her roots in Jamaica, Jane's correspondence with Joseph nevertheless reveals an undercurrent of racial conspicuousness and concern. He likely knew of his wife's ancestral makeup and colonial past, having maintained a correspondence with charity. Friends around him understood these facts as well and kept Joseph cognizant of their knowledge. He wrote to Jane of an incident in which an associate, Samuel Neal, asked him, How does that West Indian girl do? Joseph replied without a front, but noted that another friend observed that much archness seemed concealed under that question. Such suspicion reflects the sensitive nature of Joseph's alliance with a mixed-race woman. Even if Neil had no knowledge of Jane Harry's ancestry, nor clues of it based on her appearance, his question insinuated a black past. Britons sometimes suspected all Caribbean whites of containing at least some African members in their family trees. Foregrounding geographic origins <clears throat> made implicit claims about biological background to such a degree that others understood the veiled critique. If Jane did pass as white, then questions of her origin immediately threw her into an uncertain racial taxonomy. We were just talking about passing Nella Larson. That's why I said I was thinking at first, like, man, this book is so off the wall and crazy about what's going on. And then it's nope, exactly what we have been talking about for the last 14 days. This any white person, you're from the Caribbean. And that's what they say in the Island in the Sun. You've got a touch of the tar brush. That's one of the main plot points in that book uh, movie that one of the white characters. uh Oh, you've got like a black grandma and I'm going to tell everybody he ends up killing a white person around this that you're going to tell and get me in trouble and mess up everything for me in my life this if you're a white person from the Caribbean we think you you might have a black person this could cause you some problems you're passing as they say yeah um, this is a an issue that becomes uh, a challenge for all these migrants which is um, one of the things that I, I try to argue in the book is that um, kind of in the early period of the chronology of this book, which covers kind of the 1730s, the 1830s, is that early on in Britain, you, you see perhaps less of a kind of reflexive um, antipathy towards these migrants, in part because they have so much money behind them, though that kind of class can trump race in those early years. But as things go on, and especially as there's more and more debate about the morality of slavery and whether or not the slave trade should end, people are just talking more and more about this question of, you know, who are Africans? Are they entitled to rights? I mean, you know, there's just really simplistic questions about what an African, who an African is and who a European is. And, and people are trying to, to discuss why there might be differences between the two. And so ideas of race become really part of the public conversation, especially in the 1770s and the 1780s uh, up to, uh, the end of the, the period that I'm studying. And so what you see is that for migrants that are coming over, especially kind of in this later period, um, they're having their identity questioned all the time. And there's sort of insinuations about what it might mean then if they have African heritage. 
And so you have a case that you just mentioned of Jane Harry, whose um, husband is getting all these sort of pointed questions about whether or not she's actually white or what it means that she's from the Caribbean. And there are these other interesting stories that I was able to find in the archives. Um, there's one story of a, a young boy named James Taylor. Um, he's uh, born enslaved. His uh, mother lobbies to have him freed, and then uh, he gets sent to Britain by his father. And um, he tries to get into the East India Company Army, but the East India Company Army, just a few years before he tries to do that, actually prohibits uh, West Indians of color from joining their officer corps. And so the family is kind of worried about that, but they realize, like, well, he is fairly light-complected. If we can just maybe try to pull one over on the East India Company, maybe he can get into their officer corps. And then once that happens, he'd be kind of set for life. And so there's these really kind of stunning passages where um, his uncle, who he's staying with before this interview, talks about how they had tried all these different ways of disguising his African heritage. So they try to put white powder on his face, and he says, oh, that actually made him look worse. And they tried cutting his hair short in order to hide his curls. They said that worked pretty well. And it's just this, you just see the the agony that these migrants must have gone through to have their their identity and their status questioned at all times with this insinuation that they were somehow deficient because of this African heritage. So this happens in many, many cases, especially as you get closer to the 19th century and into the 19th century itself, um, the sort of amount of racism directed toward these migrants increases substantially. Mm. I thought that was a big point in the book as well. It kind of gets worse as we move along uh, through history. Uh, before we uh, let you enjoy the rest of your afternoon, uh, who who do you think, this is a question we generally try to ask our white guests, who do you think uh, is more informed uh, about what racism, white supremacy is, how it works, meaning daily operations, uh, all areas of people activity, uh, how racism is functioning? Who do you think is more informed? Uh, individuals classified as white, or individuals classified as not white? And, and what's your evidence for your, your answer? Well, I would think that individuals who are not classified as white would have the most experience with that because they're facing uh, white supremacy in their lives and they're, they're witnessing firsthand the way that it, it um, impacts individuals, the way that it has kind of subtle and non-subtle effects on their lives. Um, I, I think it's very easy for white people, people who identify as white, um, to simply ignore what's going on around them. And so I think, uh, you know, it seems pretty, just even as a kind of a logical issue, it seems kind of unquestionable that um, people of color are much more informed about these issues than uh, white identifying people. Hmm. Okay, okay. Wow, wow. The book we have been uh, chatting about, Children of Uncertain Fortune, Mixed Race Jamaicans in Britain and the Atlantic Family, 1733 to 1833. That's right up to about the uh, Nat Turner Revolt in Virginia. Uh, fast again, have to my hat tip toying. That's how I got confused. I'm glad I read it, but man, he really uh, did me a doozy there. But toying in the UK, I uh, totally get the logic of why he read this book. It makes absolute sense. You should too. Uh, if you have any connections to the Caribbean or just trying to understand. Uh, white supremacy racism as a global uh, phenomenon and particularly the uh, area eight sexual component 
lots of information. Uh, wow, it has been a hoot uh, having you on the program, Dr. Daniel Livesey, uh, speaking with us live from California. Thank you so much, Johnny, on the spot. I gave him, I didn't even give him California time for the program. I gave him London time and ready to roll. No uh, confusion at all. Much obliged uh, for being flexible and uh, allowing us to uh, ask some questions about your book. So really appreciated it. Well, thanks for inviting me. For sure. Context of white supremacy again, Dr. Daniel Livesey. Thanks so much. Uh, Enjoy your afternoon, sir. Take care, you too. For sure, for sure. After saying evening, afternoon, afternoon, we'll speak to you. Context of white supremacy. Man, that is my fault for being out of our normal time because I think we probably could have. He's in California. We could have probably picked a day when he would have been available at our normal time uh, where folks could have got questions in because I'm sure folks would have been curious. I know we have lots of people. Uh, Toyin uh, Betu in the UK and uh, Andrew's been with all those, all those times. We have so many people who have connections to investors in the Caribbean, no less. Uh, my bad, my bad. You can see the, how I got confused, though, right? Because a lot of this book deals with Britain, right? And then the person who told me about the book is in Britain, right? So that's how I was thinking. Oh yeah, Doctor uh, Livesey, he's in, and even the name, right? Because I was thinking, oh okay, that sounds like maybe he's British too. Like, oh, that's what I was in. Nah wrong on all accounts but either way uh i can only say man this is the second time. i don't even think i said this last week i'm glad i at least have time to say this this time around this is the second time since the massacre in buffalo he didn't know about joseph christopher either said he hadn't heard his name either disgraceful again that's not sloppy journalism that is white supremacy racism they could have did the same thing that i did Go to the library. Probably could just go on your computer. Not that big a deal. Anywho, um, but I think it's super important um, analyzing racism, white supremacy, uh, global system of racism. And I was going to, because everything in Buffalo, that's been all the attention as it should be. Uh, I was going to both last week and this week say, man, we should reschedule because like this doesn't have anything to do with what is happening right now. And, you know, people are already, you know, losing focus and, oh, we got to talk about Ukraine and, oh, we don't have baby formula and, oh, abortion rights. And I mean, all those things are important, but I mean, white supremacy, racism gets minimized all the time. Next, they'll be telling you that this is a, a microaggression in Buffalo, right? race relations in Buffalo, right? I was going to postpone the program last week with Dr. Uh, Dr. Ver- uh, Gerald Van Dusen, as well as the program this week uh, with Dr. Livesey, program we just had today. I'm so glad that I did not. Uh, sometimes you just have to kind of keep with it like, man, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing would have been ballistic <laughs> if I had done anything to not do this program today, uh, to not try to read the text, uh, have him on the program and speak with him about the book and what have you, at least it's in the archive so that people can hear it like she would have been livid, even from the passage that I just read. You heard that uh, passage we talked about, nigger in the woodpile touch of the tar brush that's in uh, Island in the Sun I didn't read the book I didn't even know it was a book but I saw the movie Harry Belafonte Dorothy Dan in fact we are so in lockstep we this is the second time this month that I have mentioned Dorothy Dandridge on the program Essie Mae Washington Williams who I mentioned repeatedly uh, today 
she talked about the Savannah River site nuclear facility where they uh, eminent domain took property uh, put this nuclear facility there totally contaminated there's that word again all the property you can't even fish there they have a PBS frontline documentary where it's called uh, contaminated Oh, containment. That's it. Containment could be called containment too, but containment. Uh, and the theme is we have these sites like the Savannah nuclear or the Savannah river site. We have these places that have been so poisoned and toxified that we need to make sure these sites are contained like permanently so that if, you know, aliens ET or whatever it is, if they come down or if there are pe still people here, uh, 10,000 years from now and they come to this site whoa stay away you will kill yourself get out of here right now they've you know, got to figure out a way that they can do this because they have so and there's so many locations like that but Savannah River site is one and they gave Dorothy Dandridge the boot to build the Savannah River site according to the reports that I've read amongst a number of other black people in South Carolina lockstep like exactly where we're supposed to be and again like I said this book like every page it's all of this concern about Negro contamination all these dark people in here oh my goodness what are we going to do we're so outnumbered we're so outnumbered we got so many of these black people and oh my gosh what are we going to do we got to get more white people we got to get more white people can we incentivize incentivize uh, incentivize the production of white people and stop, you know, messing around and producing all these mulatto monkeys and all that. They use that term in the book, these monkey, you know, ambiguous folks and all that. Um, white genetic annihilation, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. I, she would have read this. But all you would have to do is just pick out any number uh, of these passages. I tried to pick out and read some of the best ones that I thought, you know, kind of reflected uh, what she would pick out and say, this is exactly what I've been saying with my theory. This is exactly the type of things that Dylan Roof was talking about, exactly what Peyton Gendron was talking about, exactly what we're hearing now, even connection to talking about abortion rights. Dr. Welsing and others have said, hey, this restrictions and making it more challenging to get an abortion is same thing. We need as many white births as possible. We cannot be aborting these white fetuses. We got to have white babies, white babies, white babies. White genetic annihilation. So glad that we did do uh, the program reading more important than watching television. Uh, I'll do a quick commercial and then I'll try and pick out some of uh, the important themes that I had uh, again bummed wish we could have got uh, we could have just done this during our normal broadcast time I really really hate doing programs that are outside our normal broadcast time because people get accustomed you know tune in 8 o'clock Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific uh, for the live program that's you know try not to deviate from that uh, and then just me personally I am not a morning person Now this program started at noon so that's not morning technically however you have to be, you know, ready to roll in the morning if the program is going to start at noon and you're going to be prepped and have your quotes and everything. Be ready to rock and roll. So, yeah, I am not a morning person. Uh, it takes me a while to kind of wake up on the plantation and have my brain computer ready to roll and all that good stuff. Like I am very comfortable broadcasting uh, in the afternoon for me. Plus, it gives time uh, for people to be away from the plantation so that they can participate and ask their questions. 
missed out on that today, but we will do better. So we'll take a quick commercial uh, and then I'll give a few thoughts, uh, things that I thought were important themes uh, for the program when we'll be back and all that good stuff. And then we will wrap up uh, for the day uh, context of white supremacy. And from the late 1960s, after the death of Martin Luther King and the riots and the upheavals and all like this, and black people with their fists in there and all like that and trying to stumble and fumble and find their way and get focus, the white supremacists made a blueprint and put it in action. And that is, I'm going to have these people so confused, they don't even know what they started out to do. And by the late 1970s, they had just about completed it. And we've been on that ever since. And you mentioned something very important. They are more comfortable than ever. But see, it's like making gorillas comfortable in a cage or monkeys or pandas. You still got them in a cage, but they're comfortable. See, so give them some bling bling. It's like giving an animal a brand new car and training the animal to ride up and down the street in it. And then you stand back and point at the animal. Like one white man said in the late 1950s, he said he doesn't care what kind of car a Negro has. He said he's still a nigger. And when he rides by in a shiny car, to him, it's just a monkey in a car. White people built a car, put a monkey in it, trained the monkey to drive the car, so now you're looking at a monkey in a car. See, but black people don't see themselves that way. But this is how the white supremacists see us, and they are the ones who run our business. And we have to know that, that when they look at us, that's what they see. That that's what they see. That that's what they see. And at a subliminal level, what they see begins to spill over into our brains so that we, at a subliminal level, see each other that way. And indirectly see ourselves that way. Context of white supremacy. We will be here on Thursday. Absolute madness. Again, if you are not aware, this is the second time that a white supremacist deliberately targeted East Buffalo, a Topps grocery store in East Buffalo to kill black people. If you are not aware of that, mandatory book club Thursday 8 p.m. Eastern normal time oh, 8 p.m. Eastern 7 p.m. Central 5 p.m. Pacific normal broadcast time uh, we only did the beginning of the book last week first three chapters uh, if you missed it it's in the archives you can go back and check it out if you want a book let me know we can hook it up and read uh, but I think it's so important uh, because it seems we just I mean he talked about it at the very beginning he's a history professor chair well he is a professor but I mean he is the chair of the history department at a major college I do have a history degree that right there 
is one of the reasons history is important. Having a historical context greatly aids your understanding of white supremacy, racism, and everything else that is happening on the planet. This did not just start today. Again, I think we would have a very different way of processing what took place in Buffalo, New York a weekend or what about a week and a half ago if it was this is the second time this has happened book club Thursday 8pm Eastern 5pm Pacific Absolute Math Madness Catherine Pelinero picking up at the beginning of chapter 4 actually I'm going to the university library today uh, to see if I can dig up more uh, reports uh, on some of the victims and what have you because there's so many articles this was a really important case and uh, a different white man wrote a book uh, about the 22 caliber killer Joseph G. Christopher uh, Matt Grida uh, his book is Joey 22 uh, he should be on the program next Monday uh, he was a journalist in the western New York area when uh, all of this was taking place in the early 80s. These murders of black people, black males specifically, black get back. Uh, but he covered all of these events uh, when they were taking place uh, and then wrote his book later on. I think his book was published in 2014. But he should be with us uh, this coming Monday. Again, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I think that's Memorial Day, so-called that's a weird, I hate that man not that I'm into holidays and any of that but like man it's getting warm and what have you like I could have been at the beach got my hammock sun is coming out and everything winter is finally over I uh, can finally get rid of our winter gear up here in Seattle and gotta be here talking about the history of white killers in Buffalo that is the counter racist grind anyway things that I thought were important from today uh, if there are folks uh, who are listening and if you have any thoughts observations you can feel free get a hand up or drop an email either way be in the archives uh, so that people can check it out uh, but things that I thought were important right from the very beginning when I gave my definition and he veered off into the legacies uh, of slavery uh, and what have you and then he, he said there as well uh, that you have people who don't understand that they are taking part in that system that was within the legacies and vestiges from that uh, and I said hey what I'm talking about is current live time right now not remnants and what have you because that's so common in the way that it gets discussed and the veering to that's why I've concluded it has got to be extremely like pivotal to the maintenance of white supremacy racism to perpetuate the lie that non-white people are more informed about what racism white supremacy is and how it works gotta be and I think about that because if you already think you are an expert at swimming and you really you don't know how to swim at all you can't even spell pool never been in a pool but you think you're an expert at swimming you are going to drown if you have people who are opposed to you and that's what they want they want to sit back and crack up laughing as you drown well that's what's going to happen the system of white supremacy apparently in order for it to be maintained it is dependent on non-white people 
not understanding, not just being ignorant about that system, but being tricked into thinking that we are informed. That has got to be, and again, just stop. Because, and it's got to be, it's got to be. I'm just putting two and two together. I'm taking the number of white guests that we've heard over 13 years who insist, sometimes without provocation, they aren't even asked, but they volunteer. White people are ignorant about racism and or non-white people are the experts on white supremacy racism. I put that the number of times that I have heard non-white people say I stopped reading Neely Fuller Jr.'s book when I got to the point where he said that white people are the smartest people in the known universe. Like, who is this coon? Throw this in the trash. I've heard that so many times from lots of people classified as non-white, not all of them designated black. But I've heard the same thing. I got to that part and that is like early in the book. Like that means I didn't even get very far in that. Can't read any more of that. Throwing that in the tray. I'm just taking those two together. That must be really important because if you have people who know, I don't know how to swim. I could die if I fall in a pool. Let me see if they got a swim class that I can take. I'm picking that metaphor because that's a big part of racism to keep black people so that they are ignorant about swimming. They got whole books on that, right? Richard Williams talked about that, right? Keep black people ignorant about how to swim. You don't even give them access to the pool, but let them think they are the greatest swimmers in the world. You and Willie, man. Remember Free Willie? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We are ignorant about whites. We didn't even know Joseph. We'd never heard of Joseph G. Christopher. Somebody can't, could have come to us the day of the shooting, day before the shooting in Buffalo, give you $10 billion in the next 15 seconds. If you can tell me the significance of Joseph G. Christopher, go. None of us would have got that, including Gus T. I just knew that there was something that happened in Buffalo about all this, but I didn't know the person. Like, I didn't have all the details of what happened, so I would have lost out on that, too. We are not. And even take today's content. Now, how many of you all knew about Tacky's uh, Rebellion? Significant consequences. Same thing. Ten billion dollars. Can you tell me the significance of Tacky's Rebellion? Next 15 seconds. No iPhone no smartphone, none of that, no Siri help you just got to do it, no lifeline, can't call anybody or anything like that, just tell us what you know must be that's all I can conclude and even take the last thing that we talked about in terms of white people because I think that's so important right I mean for the duration of white supremacy racism, when I asked him about uh, white people, they just assumed if you are classified as white you were born in the Caribbean. You've been hanging out over there. They just assume like, oh, yeah, you got a touch of the tar brush. You got some nigger somewhere. Nigger in the woodpile, as they call it. Somewhere. That's the whole premise of the movie. Island in the sun. That's why I asked him about that. That's a big part of that plot. You, you definitely nigger in the woodpile. I know it. White people, you cannot be classified as white and be ignorant about racism and they, racial classifications. It's in the description for this broadcast. 
you have to be really that's one thing that you got to be a super PhD expert in terms of discerning who is classified as white and who are the Negros. You, I mean, you got to be a plus about that. You can't practice racism if you can't distinguish white person, non-white person. You are, I don't know. Is this white? You can't practice racism. White people are super discerning about that. Where are you from? Let me see your eyes. Get up on you. Ask you some quite like, see, they are way better at all of that stuff than us. And they decide who is white and who is not. Very important to keep all that in mind. Uh, let's see what else did I think was really important uh, that we talked about not including black males as victims of sexual violence like I just I think that's really important uh, because sometimes when that gets brought up it gets rejected outright because uh, some people will say that hey only females can be raped and that sort of thing it's not even logical in my view uh, but that just it gets consistently left out he did say so called the scholarship is changing not very rapidly uh, again, Delectable Negro in the book club, reading more important than watching television. I think that's 2017. We covered that. Uh, let's see. The different ways that white people deliberately uh, used racial classifications and non-white people with, with a white parent to strengthen their system. We've talked about this repeatedly uh, and many, many reasons for why non-white people should not engage in sexual activity with white people while the system of white supremacy racism exists uh, this so many times we talked about this this is in Chancellor Williams destruction of black civilization where engaging in sexual activity with white people is deliberately used as a weapon against non-white people we talked about that even putting it in the will make sure that you when you produce offspring you do so with a white person that way, if you are a so-called mixed race, biracial person, so-called, you procreate with an individual classified as white, your offspring just get lighter and lighter and lighter. As we go, one day they'll be able to be classified as white, no problem. Now, if you mess up, get pregnant, you know, Lil Wayne or somebody, oh, well, we cut you out of the well, you, you know, not doing the right thing. Uh, let's see. Also, I thought it was super important, as I said, the whole child rape that man every time because that just doesn't happen no one or even most of the non-white people who are allowed permitted to write books and things we do not describe what was happening on the plantation child rape we don't even just call it rape most of the time it gets described as everything else and a romance he even said well I didn't describe this as a romance he said romantic relation like what are you talking about I know this you didn't say child rape make it plain like what it is like that fine if we want to talk about agency and what have you how much agency would you have as a 13 year old black slave with a 30 year old white man now let's talk about agency that's correct context don't be misleading me into thinking that oh yeah this is a 30 year old with 30 year old 20 year old Carrie Butler was 15 J. Strom Thurmond, 23. Or Michael is 14, black boy. Strom Thurmond, 23, 25. Get that in there too, because that gets left out as well. We have so much of that child rape of boys and girls, and that continues even today. That I think would change a lot of how we think of romance and relationships. 
agency even. Just call it what it is. Child rape and trying to make the best of being raped as a child. And that's what anyone, that's what any being would do. Just try to make the best of a bad situation if I'm going to be able to survive this. Using logic. Uh, let's see, anything else? Uh, the no marriage, I thought that was important too because that's that stands today. You still, most of the white people in the known universe do not marry a black person unless they're like Tiger Woods and I'm, you know, a nanny on welfare, you know, Mike Jordan, Serena Williams. Like if it's not that most of the individuals classified as white on the planet do not marry black people, folks who are designated as an ant. That does not happen. Black get back for sure. And that's how, you know, illegitimate. They don't mind hopping in the bushes and doing something. We have some illegitimate, but they call it kinky because that's in the word guide with you. That's why I said none of this because it's just tacky. Matter of fact, I'm gonna go back and read that passage. He said, the added political pressures of abolition galvanized those worries. Evidence given in the parliament by anti-slavery activists between 1970 and 1791 1790, excuse me, 1790 and 1791 noted that white overseers effectively used black workers as prostitutes. It says black workers. It didn't say black female workers. So I'm assuming that's probably both males and females. Rethinking Rufus, Thomas A. Foster. Effectively used black workers as prostitutes and thus diminished their reproductive capacities. A 1790 account of Caribbean customs similarly railed against the practice of whites keeping black and mixed race mistresses who from their youth are taught to be whores. That ain't no romance. That ain't no agency. And in fact, that is 2022. If you really want to keep it real, like all that twerking and what have you, all that being reckless with sex and just black people scandal. It's he ain't say scandal. You know, I love Kerry Washington, but I mean, scandal, all of it. Black people as whores, that shaft we just talked about. Oh, we really, that's another one since black people are so smart. All the black people know that Ernest Tidyman, a white man, wrote Shaft, right? Right. That one was unanimous. Remember, we read that in the book club. Even Neely Fuller Jr. said, no, I did not know that, although I am not surprised. That was what the great Mr. Fuller had to say, victim also. But I mean, yeah, <laughs> we are still all of us all over the world that's how we are thought of and that's how we are trained to behave males and females as whores was it Richard Bernstein he was a guest on the program his book the east the west and sex he said but that was the name of the chapter he didn't just say it the name of the chapter is the whole world as the white man's brothel. I just said it should be white man and white woman's, but I mean, hey, the whole world as the white man's brothel. Who works at a brothel? That's us, males, females. That's how we are trained. That's one thing right there. 
we want to solve this problem and get serious like hey we are not getting down in the bedroom at all and I mean just no reckless sexual activity at all there will never be another throwaway child like never ever that right there big time steps towards universal woman universal man production of justice but yeah all this we are just I mean all the music right bitches and hoes that's what we've been saying that's what we call each other for I don't even know like generations bitches and hoes bitches and hoes bitches that's us all the niggers males and females that's us similar uh, point the minimizing of rape now when I asked him this is rape this is child rape he gave a nonverbal response when I first brought it up now hey we are on audio like basically everyone who's not like 12 is aware you would be yes no verbalized <laughs> like what in the world like it's same thing they would tell you if you won the court right if you were in court on the witness stand like what in the world we are transcribing like verbalize thank you that's what I mean about difficulty just this is child rape like we can get real kind even we victims have been conditioned because that is truth we've had guests on this program who sit and write about this sort of thing as plantation romance Thomas Jefferson loved him some Sally Hemings J. Strom Thurmond he loved him some Carrie Butler we heard that from Essie Mae Washington right she said she said remember she said uh she wrote that she she dreamed about J. Strom Thurmond and her mother Carrie Butler them holding hands and walking through some of the little so-called progressive uh, boroughs uh, in New York City. Remember she talked about that? At, the, at 15 and 23, that's what you that's what you think. That's why I said that we really had that in mind. Get out of that. Oh, this is a romance. This is child rape. If you saw a 23 year old with a 15 year old, I don't think a whole lot. Oh, look at that. That's exactly what Dr. King talked about. Didn't he? he said he wanted to see us little black girl and little white boy holding hand. That's what he said. That's not exactly a little white boy because he's 23. So, I mean, that's a little black girl and a big white man holding hands, which is what they put in front of us. Right. With loving. Right. She's a. Uh, what is it? Uh, Richard Loving and Mildred Loving got the names of. I think my memory is accurate. <clears throat> She's eleven and he's seventeen. We're supposed to celebrate and applaud that as you know progress. All the way through, uh, that's how we are trained. That's how we're conditioned to think of ourselves. That's how we're conditioned to think of even progress. How we're ending racism is hopping in bed with white people even black children apparently hopping in bed with grown white men is somehow working against racism which that's what we heard anyway yeah we hear that all the time that's not going to solve the problem that's just a sad indictment of how confused we are and incorrect use of words is a big part of that every time it's not just rape it's child let me read what he say he said 
1790 account of Caribbean customs similarly railed against the practice of whites keeping blacks and mixed race mistresses who from their youth up are taught to be whores make it plain don't call me a person of color just call us nigger whores make it plain that's what this is because that's kind of at the center of all this all that sexual exploitation and rape boy scouts of america catholic church jerry sandy just goes on and on and on all of that at the center even the southern baptist church they got that report i guess i gotta play that now for the compensatory call this weekend but they just had that about how the same thing and a lot of times now these are them having to admit about how they've had century a century or more of raping white children that was the boy scouts they said they had a list going back a hundred years of white child rapists and them covering up all this that's why they're in bankruptcy now this is white children what are they doing to Negras who are raised to be whores from birth. Goodbye, Uncle Tom, right? People who could sit through that. Anywho, uh, again, I'm just thankful that we, Dr. Francis Cress Welting, white genetic annihilation, pseudoscientific BS. That's what Timothy told us. Okay, I hear it from Peyton and through centuries you hear the same echo. Black get back? Is too many of these dark people around? Y'all gotta get out of here? What are we gonna do? The threat of Negro tanked? Dylan Stoyne over and over through centuries how is it that that is such a potent rallying call for individuals classified as white to anything can be done slaughter any number of non-white people enslave them rape them kill them castrate them whatever white genetic annihilation get the ISIS papers do some studying if you uh, are still learning as am I Uh, we will be here on Thursday uh, 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific for the book club Uh, again Wish we could have had the program at the correct time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, but just got confused because I didn't hear about this book from uh, U.S. listeners. Uh, our Global Sunday Talk is how I heard about this book. Much obliged to Toyin. I'll have to uh, send him a link to the broadcast. He can you know, tell us if we brought out any of the main themes or, or points that he uh, thought were significant in his reading of the text. Uh, shout to uh, Toyin in the U.K. Uh, much obliged for folks listening to the archives uh, and or live. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy uh, this early Tuesday. Man, it's so crazy to be done with the program this early. Uh, again, we'll be here on Thursday for the book club. Absolute Madness, Joseph G. Christopher. If you don't know who that is, mandatory. Tune in for the book club two days. Uh, that's it. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. <laughs> Joseph G. Christopher, Peyton Gendron. Lots of reasons we need sober, high-functioning brain computers to solve this problem. In addition to being sober, when we're out and about, if someone is being hostile, really for any reason, white, non-white, whatever, this is not a time for random confrontations with strangers. Uh, Exit. If this person is being hostile and rowdy, vacate the area you can call enforcement officials as you're leaving you should be thinking this person may be armed if you did not leave your uh, residence 
prepared to kill and or die exit you don't know if they have an entourage and or might have the same thinking and done their recon just like Peyton Gendron if you're in a vehicle you're buckled sober not on your mobile device uh, we need to be alert paying attention there were people who said that they were driving into the grocery store when all of this broke out uh, in Buffalo so be alert you don't want to have headphones and all that other stuff on have your music up way loud that way you can pay attention to what's happening around and just doing small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother a victim. Yeah. A victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.